Optimal minimal. At this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Can I ask you a personal question? Now we're just seeing a perfect time. I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over a metal endoskeleton. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. I get asked all the time what I would take if I could only take one supplement. The answer is invariably Athletic Greens. I view it as all-in-one nutritional insurance. I recommended it, in fact, in the four-hour body. This is more than 10 years ago, and I did not get paid to do so. With approximately 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, you'd be very hard-pressed to find a more nutrient-dense and comprehensive formula on the market. It has multivitamins, multimineral greens complex, probiotics and prebiotics for gut health, an immunity formula, digestive enzymes, adaptogens, and much more. I usually take it once or twice a day just to make sure I've covered my bases if I miss anything I'm not aware of. Of course, I focus on nutrient-dense meals to begin with. That's the basis. But Athletic Greens makes it easy to get a lot of nutrition when whole foods aren't readily available. From travel packets, I always have them in my bag when I'm zipping around. Right now, Athletic Greens is giving my audience a special offer on top of their all-in-one formula, which is a free vitamin D supplement and five free travel packs with your first subscription purchase. Many of us are deficient in vitamin D. I found that true for myself, which is usually produced in our bodies from sun exposure. So adding a vitamin D supplement to your daily routine is a great option for additional immune support. Support your immunity, gut health, and energy by visiting athleticgreens.com slash TFS. You'll receive up to a year's supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your subscription. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash TFS, as in Tim Ferriss show. athleticgreens.com slash TFS. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Hello, ladies and germs, and welcome to another episode of The Tim Ferriss Show, where it is my job to deconstruct world-class performers, whether they are chess prodigies, hedge fund managers, professional athletes, musicians, actors, politicians, you name it. Arnold Schwarzenegger's been on the show. We have people like Josh Waitzkin, who's been on the show, the inspiration for Searching for Bobby Fischer. But this time, we have one of your favorites. Categorically, you guys love these episodes. And we have a strength coach, a hypertrophy coach, and a nutrition coach, all in one Charles Poliquin is his name. Charles Poliquin is one of the best-known strength coaches in the world. He has trained elite athletes from nearly 20 different sports, including Olympic gold medalists, NFL All-Pros, NHL All-Stars and Stanley Cup champions, and IFBB bodybuilding champions. His clients include all sorts of folks, but in that list you would find long jump gold medalist Dwight Phillips, NHL MVP Chris Pronger, and MLB, that's Major League Baseball, batting champion Edgar Martinez, among many others. Charles is currently teaching advanced hypertrophy, nutrition, and strength seminars alongside one of my favorite athletes, Olympic weightlifting icon and medalist Dmitry Klokov. You have to look this guy up, and there is a photo of Charles, who's now 
over 50 years old, training with Dimitri. And it looks like Charles' arms might be bigger, amazingly. This guy is a specimen, both of them. In any case, Poliquin has authored more than 600 articles on strength training. He is prolific, and his work has been translated into 12 different languages. He has also written eight books, and his latest work is Arm Size and Strength, The Ultimate Guide. And he certainly walks the talk with that one. You have to see it to believe it. And I'll certainly put some photos and the show notes and links and everything at fourhourworkweek.com forward slash podcast. So you can find links to everything that that includes our conversation on blood testing, neurotransmitter optimization, hormone replacement therapy, the good, the bad, and the ugly of that, what to do with loose skin or stretch marks. We covered just about everything, his ideal breakfast and, uh, he is an amusing fellow. So if you've never thought of a penis skin on your abs, well, he will give you some imagery that will help you remember all sorts of useful tidbits, <laughs> that among many others. You can find a lot more on Charles and his latest at strengthsensei.com. But in the meantime, this conversation covers a lot. I had a blast. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. And here is Charles Poliquin. Charles, welcome to the show. Thank you, Tim. Uh, I really appreciate you asking me to be on your podcast. I'm uh, excited to dig into all sorts of good stuff. You and I have spent some time together, and I, st I still remember, I'm not sure if it's post-traumatic stress disorder, <laughs> but the ART that you did on my shoulder <laughs> at one of your seminars, uh, where I was, I was held down. I felt like it was a scene out of Oz or something, but the... Uh, <laughs> you have a very wide ranging, uh, a very wide ranging uh, expertise, and that that goes all the way from you know, ART, active release technique, and doing this manual therapy to the training, the nutrition, the supplementation. When someone asks you, "What do you do?" What is your answer? I simply say I'm a strength coach, uh, but the tools I use, I guess, are a bit more wary than some of my colleagues. <laughs> And uh, how did you first become fascinated by by strength? And also closely related to that is English your is is English your first language? Not at all. It's French. I didn't speak English actually till I was seventeen, and then I actually learned English because I wanted to be really good at strength training. So the the story behind that is that you know as a kid, I remember looking at Tarzan comics or watching Captain America cartoons, and I was. I always wanted a big physique. I thought I was like the ultimate hero. But what happened is that when I was about 14, um, you know, as I'm a recovering Catholic, so I had to go to Catholic church every Sunday. And to be frank, I hated it. And I only went there to perv on this girl called Lucie Lemieux, who was, <laughs> was, was very hot. And then one day she didn't show up. So the next day on Monday, I said, hey, Lucy, you weren't at church yesterday. She goes, no. I'm 14 now, and my parents say you can decide whether you go or not. So I said, if it's good enough for her, it's good enough for me. So what happened is I um, uh, there was a university library, the University of Ottawa was right beside the church. So I said, instead of wasting my time listening to what I thought was bullshit, I'm going to go to the university library. And I was on the magazine section of periodicals, and I saw a French uh, magazine, a periodical from Belgium called Kinesiology, Kinesiology, and they talked about arthritis in the knee. And I, I, so I read it. It was in French, so I could understand. And I didn't speak English at the time. So then it didn't take a long time to go through everything. 
in French that was about strength training. So then I said, okay, I've got to learn English. And I, I distinctly remember having to look up what bicep peak meant. Like I said, I, <laughs> so, so I would use the English dictionary. I said, a bicep peak. And then I remember peak as in peak of a mountain. I go, then I, okay, it's a figure of style, blah, blah, blah. And then, so I learned uh, everything in English uh, rather quickly because I had passion. And then I realized that all the best stuff was in German. So I decided to learn German. And that's how I started. I, I always, always wanted to be ahead of the game. So I always figured out who's the best teachers and then learn from them. And I remember I was 21. I would save my money up and I went to Germany to meet Rolf Faser, who I took the uh, German volume training from. And I would see all the experts that I went to Finland to meet Pavel Komi and I beat Marschmidt Bleicher. So whoever was the best at the time, I went to learn from them. So, uh, you know, that's how I started actually. And you have just a, an astonishing memory, a factual mm -hmm. recall ability. Is mm -hmm. that something that, uh, your parents also had? My father uh, spoke 14 languages. So <laughs> <laughs> I guess he did, uh, uh, I have a great memory. I think that uh, I, I basically taught myself how to read. Uh, my parents realized that I knew how to read before I went to school. So the way I figured it out is that, you know, we had a lot of, I was the fifth out of eight boys. So there was a lot of books around, a lot of comic books in French. And there would be like these uh, word uh, illustrated dictionary books. Right. So let's say I saw a fire truck, you know, in French, camion, pompier. Then I said, okay, the code for fire truck is this. And then after that, I started to read a comic strip called Asterix. Oh, and great, great comic strip. So my father came back from Paris and he told my mom, yeah, he's pretending he knows how to read. And my mom said, no, he knows how to read. She goes, that's impossible. He, he has a good memory. He, his brothers read to him and he, he just recites like a you know, parakeet. And she goes, no, because I have the ultimate test. So the French edition always came out six months before the Canadian edition. And since my father knew that all his boys like Asterix, he would always buy the latest Asterix. So he pulled it out. He says, read this. And I read it. And he was astonished I could read it. And my mom says, I told you, he taught himself how to read. So uh, apparently my oldest brother did the same thing. So it's, uh, I just wanted to learn. I was bored to death. So I would pick up reading. <laughs> That's that's incredible. I did your brothers also have an interest in strength training, or was uh, were you the the odd one of the group? Uh, my brothers' interests are quite different than mine. I, I'm the odd one in the family. Got it. And um, I'm going to uh, ask a, ask a question. The wording of which might be a little weird, but I, I think you're known for quite a few different things. What do your best friends think you're world class at that perhaps the rest of the world doesn't know? Probably uh, people say that I'm the best friend to have, the worst enemy to to have. So they'll say that I'll, I'll jump in front of a bullet for them. But before I jump in front of a bullet, I'd rather kill a guy myself. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, but uh, people say that um, the most uh, the, the compliment I appreciate the most is when people say to me, "I wish I had a father like you." So when they see me interact with my daughter and the way she behaves and the way she learns. And they said, uh, and I'm really well known to teach people have to have confidence. That's what they say. I'm a world class. At. So for example, I had a friend of mine, she's a single mother. She, her, her kid's dad was absent. So she left him with me for the day 
And when she came back, the kid knew how to swim and he knew how to ride a bicycle without training wheels. And she goes, you did that in a whole day? I said, well, teaching how to swim without fear takes five minutes. She goes, are you serious? And I told him how I teach it. And she goes, wow, that's very simple. So uh, I guess I'm world-class at solving problems. Uh, and people love my cooking. Anybody that's been to my house. But, you know, I cook man food, you know. So, for example, <laughs> I make a chili with yak, uh, buffalo, and elk, and ostrich. And, you know, people have six, seven servings. They feel like cage. <laughs> but, you know, I like, to, I like to cook. I think that's a a great way to be creative. Um, uh, I guess being creative is one of my biggest assets. Um, I, um, and I, I love to take like a recipe and then improve it. You know, so I, I'm not one to stick to rules so much. What is your, so your, your chili sounds like the Noah's Ark chili. It's got yeah. like a bit of every animal imaginable. So what, what is What are the ingredients in the chili? What's the key to making good chili? I think the key to making good chili is actually blending the meats. For example, ostrich is a really high iron content, but you might as well chew on a illico barbell plate when you eat the ostrich, <laughs> right? It's it's so. It, and then I take I use something with a higher fat content, uh, like the yak, and then that kind of offsets it. And I used to use elk, but elk for a lot of people tends to be too gamey, right? Yep. Uh, but when you blend with buffalo, it kind of equals it out. So. Uh, and I've played with ratios over the years, but I think I've got the recipe down pat. But the, the, the secret is it, the yak. I think the yak makes a huge difference on the, on the palatability of the meal. Got it. And is that that's uh, partially thanks to the fat content? Yeah. And also because, you know, all the animals I pick tend to have um, high omega-3 fat in them because of what they eat. I mean, the best meat to eat in the world is wapiti, which is a type of deer that uh, lives in northeastern Canada and you can only shoot it from an helicopter because there's no roads where the Wapiti lives and that meat is chased by wolves all day so besides the fact that it eats grass taller than the animal itself which is really high in omega-3 the animal is chased multiple times a day by uh, wolf packs which makes the animal make glycogen which makes the meat uh, fatty and sweet at the same time you know it's like how, it's almost like a fudge in the meat. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, but the problem is, is you're not allowed to import it into the U S so I only make it when I go see my folks in Canada. Got it. Yeah. You have to, uh, pretty high barrier to entry if it requires a helicopter ride and, and <laughs> yeah. sniping skills from the air. <laughs> Basically. So it, it, you know, when I go to Montreal, I know where to buy it. And there's a place where my sister lives in Gatineau where they have it in stock year round. Uh, but it, it is the best meat. If you ever come and see me, or in Montreal area, I'll take you to, to eat that meat. Oh, I'd love to love to do that. I've never been to Montreal. They have very good tango there as well, from what I hear. But uh, the um, the next the next question is kind of a, a sidestep. But you you have these these little nuggets, and I remember one question that I get asked a lot. You had answers to, which was how to get rid of stretch marks. So what happens quite often is I'll, uh, people will follow any given diet or maybe the mm. di one of the diets in the four hour body or whatever, mm. and they'll lose a lot of weight and then they'll have this loose skin or stretch marks to contend with. Um, how do you recommend people, uh, mitigate or, or get rid of stretch marks or, or loose skin? What are your thoughts on that? I mean, if you're the type of guy that's lost so much weight that you can actually windsurf with your, uh, scrotum, <laughs> uh, then here's the solution. The, the, 
there's an herb called Gachicola. And that herb will, and I learned this from Mauro Di Pasquale, who's one of my early mentors, yep. will get rid of what we call unnecessary scar tissue or unnecessary connective tissue. The truth of the matter, though, is that you will see zero progress uh, for the loose skin uh, for six months. So people say, well, it's not worth it. But I, I tell people, just keep doing it for six months. And then it's almost like overnight there seems to be a saturation point where then the body gets the message to cell signaling. And then in a matter of days, I've had, for example, people who look like they have 15% body fat and they're actually 6% body fat when you measure them on a DEXA scan. And then when they do this uh, supplement for an extended period of time, which is two tablets uh, three times a day, then uh, overnight they tighten up. Uh, you know, huh. it's, this, this is not an exaggeration. Everybody who's tried it said, yeah, it's, it's exactly what it is. I mean, I had a, one of my best students who was a former pro bodybuilder. He had a, a client come in and he weighed 480 pounds and he decided to lose weight because he would, you know, select his clothes the night before and he realized his pants covered the whole bed. So, <laughs> so he went to this gym and after a year and a half, he was down to 200 pounds. So he had lost 280 pounds, but I mean, there's enough loose skin to bury five cadavers inside of them. So we, um, I told my friend, just give him that. And a year later, I met that guy. He was so thankful for that trick because he finally got rid of the loose skin. So uh, Gotchukola is the herb you want to use for that. Got it. G-O-T-U-K-O-L-A. Is that how you yeah, say it? Yeah, exactly. It's two separate words, yes. And uh, are you using anything topically as well, or is it all uh, consumed, all consumable? There are some compounding pharmacists that will make you a Gotchicola uh, bioabsorbable cream. That works a lot faster. I would say if you could find a compounding pharmacist that will do that and it's a biologically active form, uh, you could get the same results in about two to three months. In Canada in the early 80s, you could actually buy it as, as a prescription. Got it. But, but it wasn't popular. That's what Mauro used to recommend. And then when the cream... Uh, fell out of the marketplace, the, the best alternative was to use the oral. I see. And then this is, you seem to find, uh, because you have so many contacts and you work with so many coaches, not only coaches, but also doctors in different countries. I'm, I'm constantly astonished by the, uh, I wouldn't say shortcuts, but just, uh, very elegant approaches that you can find to all these different problems. What are, what are things that you believe that most other people think are crazy? Uh, I think that, well, now, okay, you, we all know about the Chinese five elements, correct? Right. And well, then, maybe, maybe you could give an overview for folks who aren't familiar, but... Okay, uh, okay. Yeah. okay. so in Chinese medicine, they believe there's five elements that regulate uh, health, fire, water, earth, metal, and... Um, metal and water. So the, the point is, is that, so in Chinese medicine, they'll describe a condition as, let's say, excessive fire or not enough fire or fire deficiency or water excess. And this was very poetic, but now science has backed up what it means. So in Chinese medicine, for example, osteoporosis and adrenal fatigue are the same thing. Well, in Western medicine, it's not. So years ago, I had observed that train, the training of athletes has to be individualized. 
So for example, you know, when you talk, let's say about squat, two of my favorite people on earth are Ed Cohn and John Rose, and they know how to get a big squat. But if you look at the way they get you to have a big squat, it's diametrically opposed. But the, the key is not to say, well, one is better than the other. What the key is, is what is best for you. And I, I studied the Chinese medicine approach and what I figured out is that it's actually a neurotransmitter dominance, if you want to explain it into the modern world. So some athletes make a lot of dopamine. They need a lot of variation in their workouts. They need to go balls to walls every workout, uh, but they need variation. If they don't have variation every workout, they don't make progress. While some people are what I call earth type, which I don't have a any dominance. And then they, they, they're more like Thomas the Tank Engine. It's slow progress. All the training methods is based on patience. They never miss a lift, you know, and that method works for them. And in bodybuilding, you've seen that. You've seen in every sport. You even look at wrestling. I coach three girls who are on national team. And one is dopamine dem- dominant. And she's like a, a mongoose on PCP when she fights. <laughs> <laughs> you know, she's really hard to predict what she does. And then you have, you know, acetylcholine dominant one where she's, she has a style that uh, confuses people. And then I have a earth type wrestler who's number one in the world right now. And she's very patient when she fights. And, you know, she'll arm block you and then she waits, she waits, she waits, and she tires you out. And she's not uh, dominant in any neurotransmitters, which would make her, her earth type, you know. So over the – so now people – when I start to talk about the elements, people say, oh, he's like granola head, bullshitter, blah, blah, blah. And then now my most popular course is actually advanced program design. And if you look at the reviews on my website, people say that's the fastest way to individualize the training process. I'm really big – on individualization. I think that people want a cookie cutter approach and they don't like the fact that when I answer a question, you know, if you ask me a question, what's the best way to screw a screw? I'll say a screwdriver and I'll say, why didn't you say a saw? Well, I don't have time to explain to you that a screwdriver is the best tool. So I've been considered rigid in my um, approach, but I'm not, I've done a lot of trial and error, but if you're going to ask me for a, a solution. I'll tell you the quickest way to get there. I, I, I don't. I don't have time to educate everybody. You know. Mm-hmm. So, and yeah. w- with the neurotransmitter dominance, how do you determine, or how does one determine, uh, if which category they fall into? Actually, I think. I mean, there has been a lot of efforts clinically to do, let's say, saliva work or urine work, and even the labs who've done the research says it's kind of. Uh, Useless. Okay. So if you look at Katrin Wilner, who has won the cone of the Nobel Prize for Functional Medicine, she is a big advocate of um, the Braverman test, which you could download for free. Uh, you just Google Eric Braverman, the Braverman test. And it's a multiple uh, a question answer type of uh, format. And I found, she found, and so did Bill Belica, who's another neurotransmitter expert, to found it to be the, actually the most accurate uh, test, but you can only do it once in your life. And because if you redo the, the questionnaire, you know the questions and then you'll, there'll be an internal bias to the answer. But if you answer truthfully, um, and then what you find is that this true, complete dominance is rather rare. But you will find that you say more firewood or what I call dopamine acetylcholine, 
dependent. So you need both. And there's always a limiting factor when you do the test. So you could have, let's say, be Johnny Dopamine, but you lack GABA. So your biggest limiting factor is you can't have what we call centered calmness, you know, which is what the GABA is the neurotransmitter for. So, or it could be dopamine dominant, like uber dopamine boy. But what happens is that you have no serotonin, so you don't have any fun in your life. And the fact that you don't have any fun is actually a limiting factor to, to your progress. So I think, you know, they say, know yourself. Uh, yeah, that's the first thing you should do. So I, when I teach the class, I, I make all my students do the test. And then for three days, I explain how to individualize depending on what physical quality you want. So let's say if you want to get big and you're dopamine de- dependent, that's how you should do it. And then I give the in-betweens. And then the most common comment is this, now the progress I achieve with my students or my clients is much faster. And, you know, for years, I remember when I had my facility in Phoenix, I would have, let's say, 10 hockey players training at the same time. And the guys would look at each other's program and they thought maybe I had some favorites. And I did. Everybody had their best program for them, you know. Right. Uh, so the uh, I think that's one of the keys to success. I mean, there's a lot of ways to get there, but you got to find what's the best way for you. You know, um, I mean, if you look, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say, I think you also touched on something that's very important, which is the testing effect. So you'll, mm. in so many different areas of life, whether it's athletics, academics, uh, even very smart people make the mistake of looking at someone who say, or a cohort of people who take the same test multiple times and they assume that some type of intervention, whether it's a supplement or a training program is improving their performance, but it's like, no, you have to, you have to at least ask the question, what if they're only getting better at the test? Right. Yes. And, and and that, 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 I think that is probably has a lot of implications for diagnosis with, with athletes as well. I don't, I don't know, but I mean yourself, you're the epitome of self-testing, right? So, I mean, that's one of your, uh, keys to success. You're willing to be the lab rat for all of us, right? So uh, the advantage with me is I've had a lot of lab rats who wanted to go to the Olympics and I've tried different things. But, you know, one of the critiques I often get is you're not scientific or you don't like science. Well, here's my answer to these detractors. <laughs> Clinical experience out, uh, beats, uh, cl- um, Research studies. I'll give you an example. In February 2008, in the Journal of Applied uh, Strength and Conditioning, there was a paper, Cluster Training, a Novel Approach to Strength Training, or the Development of Relative Strength. Okay, that's February 2008. I learned how to do cluster training in 1975. I was 14 years old. So if I use cluster training with all the sports where I needed relative strength, I started to be a strength coach in 78. So if you look at it, uh, the difference between 78 and 2008 is very big. Quite a few Olympics in between, right? Do you agree? So if you look at that, if I waited for research to do the right type of training that produced something like medalist, I would have wasted about a few dozen Olympics, right? So the thing is that you know, if you include uh, winter and summer. So the point is that when the article came out, I said, that's interesting. It's novel, 2008. So I asked my coach, where did you learn about cluster training? He says, I learned it in 68 <laughs> in Paris. And I said, okay, where do you think it came from? And we did some 
background research, and we think it was first developed by a Bulgarian coach in 1948. Okay, so then we have about 60 years uh, of between when the clinician developed the method and when the research was actually done, right? So, for example, I used to early on have been recommending high doses of fish oil, 30 to 45 grams, and then the biggest amount of research, uh, fish oil used in research at the time was seven grams with uh, med school students. And then I convinced Mark Houston, who's an MD, to use high dosages. And then he says, wow, it's really good for dyslipidemia, high blood pressure, cardiovascular risk. And it doubled my business. I said, why did it double your business, Mark? Well, because my patients are losing fat, and now people are coming in for fat loss and not for <laughs> treating uh, vascular disorders. And five or seven years after I convinced him, there was a Kenyan research paper that came out that said to treat obesity the best dose of fish oil was 60 grams. Wow. And, and uh, my, Mark sent me an email, and the title was, Clinicians Always Ahead of the Curve. And he says, I don't know if you read the study, and he showed it to me. And then the, the, the interesting thing was is that, why did I come up with 30 to 45 grams of fish oil? Okay, I did not have peer-reviewed uh, studies, but the human genome evolved most dramatically once we got our omega-3s to 300 to 400 grams per week. You know, we used to eat uh, animal brains and we used to suck on femurs of uh, antelopes and stuff like that. And when the human starts to ingest a lot of omega-3s, particularly DHA, our brains develop very fast. We are able to develop tools and so on. So a lot of the stuff I do may not be peer-reviewed based, but in essence, basic science is basic science, you know. And then if you if your principles are sound, then and to, to, to be frank, I don't really give a shit about the detractors because, you know, uh, research always backed me up, but sometimes 20, 40 years after I've done it. So clin clinical experience, uh, you can't beat that. Yeah. And I, and I, I, I think it's important also for people to realize that, that there's a value and a place for peer reviewed placebo controlled studies, but they're also very slow. They require funding. Uh, there are a lot of regulations in, in different areas related to those types of studies. And like you said, science is not a, a study. Science is a scientific thinking is scientific thinking, right? I mean, you're forming a uh, hypothesis, you're testing that hypothesis, trying to disprove it, looking at alternative explanations for the outcome and kind of rinsing and repeating. So I, I, I think that it's, uh, there's a really good book on this called Bad Science by a guy named yeah. Ben Goldacre. That yeah. I think everybody should be required to read just so they can parse um, it's kind of the sensationalist bullshit that they see in, say, the newspaper from what the real science actually says. Uh, quick question on the fish oil. Is there. Uh, just, uh, just on that, furthermore, I think it should be a required reading to have a Facebook account because this way you would stop making those dumb comments if you read that book. And just because. You know, I, I agree 100% with you. The other thing, too, is that we don't know if one of the subjects did ecstasy on the weekend and stayed up. You know, there's a lot of shit we can't control. So, um, yes, you do have to have a scientific basis to what you do. And I'm in full agreement. Uh, yeah. Well, what's also kind of frustrating for me is that uh, people give so much credence to, say, long longitudinal observational studies mm -hmm. when, that are depending on 
people self-reporting when they can remember or misremember whatever they write down, but they discount the sort of small sample size experimental studies that, for instance, you've been doing with athletes for decades. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very, very frustrating. Uh, but the um, quick question on the on the fish oil is: uh, Is there any risk of uh, any type of intestinal bleeding or anything like that with extremely high uh, what what most people would consider high dosages of fish oil? I've never seen it, but when I use fish oil in high dosages, I never use it more than six months. The reason why I found that I don't need to go longer than six months is in six months, you should have attained your body composition goal. But if you do free fatty acid profiles uh, on a regular basis, you find that after six months, everything is pretty well set. And then you only need a maintenance. And if the person eats a lot of wild meat, a lot of uh, sea products, I, I give them no fish oil. So, for example, myself, uh, from May to October, I don't take any fish oil because I'm back home. I eat the wild meat I like to eat. I eat the fish, blah, blah, blah. But, of course, if I go to England where the concept of a steak is more like a hockey puck, <laughs> yeah, you, you, won't, you won't have good omega-3 supply. But even, you know, I get regular blood work, and I found that for me, at age 54, when I'm on a fish oil program, it's two grams a day, which is nothing, right? But, you know, the, every single gene in the human genome has a receptor site for omega-3s. So Mauro de Pasquale taught me this in 94. He says, if you look at any medical scientific database, it is impossible not to find a study where omega-3s alleviates symptoms of all diseases known to man. And I said, that's bullshit. So he had his own database. He had 8 million scientific references. He says, punch in whatever you want. So punch preeclampsia. I try to come up with anything like uh, ADD, ADHD, uh, trisomic children, whatever. And then in every single uh, ailment I punched in with the keyword omega-3, I found at least one study. Okay. But I read the, the, the test two years ago and the minimum amount of studies I found was the beneficial outcome with omega-3 therapy was 14 for any disease I could punch in. So, uh, you know, D3, omega-3 and thyroid are necessary for every gene in the human genome. That's what we know so far. Uh, it's probably more, but, um, uh, as far as intestinal bleeding, clinically I've used very high dosages, like 60 grams. And I've never seen it, but maybe it's the whoever you work with. I tend to work with healthier than average uh, population. And, but then again, you know, according to Dr. Rakowski, only two to three percent of Americans would be considered healthy. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. The now, now speaking of, um, you, you mentioned Mara Di Pasquale. So he, I think introduced me first to what he, what he was calling the anabolic diet when I was Correct. when I was in high school, uh, which, if I'm remembering correctly, it was um, on some level a cyclical ketogenic diet. Uh, I, I don't think I'm butchering that, but no. I, I was also introduced to your writing through Muscle Media 2000, mm-hmm. way back in the early days. Uh, what have you changed your mind about over time? What are, uh, what are things that you've most tra- changed your mind about over, over the last you know, decade or two? The most important thing that I've learned about nutrition is you need to deserve your carbs. 
So if you look at the world average carbohydrate intake should be about 40%. That would be healthy carbohydrate, but it's the average. It's not the individual. So if you're dealing with an Inuit from Tuk Tuk Yak Tuk in the Kenyan North, healthy carbohydrate intake for him is probably 2% because he eats whale blubber, narval, uh, seal, and so on. So I had a guy who played in the NHL. He was fat. And I said, you know, you're a native uh, Inuit. Why don't you eat like a native Inuit when you go back home? And he went. And he went from a, something like a 21% body fat to a 6% body fat eating 70% fat and 30% protein and zero carbohydrates, right? So I find that you you have to figure out what's your set point for carbohydrates. But most people eat too many carbohydrates, or actually drink too many carbohydrates. And then they eat carbohydrates, but they eat the wrong type. People perceive me as a carbohydrate Nazi and not you know, or anti-carbohydrate. That's the, the thing is, is that I've got some of my athletes who do best on 70% carbs, 20% protein, 10% fat, but they deserve their carbohydrates. They got a great pancreas, they're insulin sensitive, blah, blah, blah. They've got a lot of muscle mass, but some athletes, you know, they are allowed 10 licks of a dry prune every six months. That's, <laughs> that's all they deserve. And that's all they'll get. And after six months, they're actually allowed to look at calendar pictures of cakes, you know, <laughs> Once a week, but but I think that the the most important thing I learned from Maro is that I remember asking Maro this question. He, he's one of the best people I've ever had the chance, you know, and the honor to talk to. And he told me, he says, in nutrition, this is what we call the seventy percent rule. And I found it, that to be true in training. Seventy percent of the advice is good for seventy percent. I mean, seventy percent. The advice is only good for seventy percent of the population, and you, you got fifteen percent on each side that are outliers. So the seventy percent rule for carbohydrates should be forty percent if you are healthy. Okay, mm-hmm. and then some of the guys do very well on seventy percent. Okay, so uh, I think that you you have to monitor yourself. Things like your morning insulin, your morning glucose, your reactive insulin test your HB1AC, you do those four tests and you start with a starting point and uh, you do these tests for the, every eight weeks would be enough and then you'll find what's best for you. That's what I tell my students to do. Um, Could you you elaborate on each of those tests just so people can, uh, and and we'll put this in the show notes as well, but I think think people would love to know uh, if if you could just go through those those bullets and just – describe a little bit for context each of those uh, with the purpose of each of those tests well morning glucose morning insulin you know are basal tests so it gives you a reference value but one thing you have to be wary of is what we call the norms when you think norms you should think of homer simpson okay so for example morning glucose the norms according to most american labs is 70 to 99 in the morning okay that's after a 12-hour fast the problem is is that your risk of cardiovascular disease increases 5% after every single digit above 70. So in other words, you could have 99 and be in a normal range, but your cardiovascular risk is actually 145% greater than if it was 70, right? right. So, so there's a difference between normal and optimal, okay? So uh, I'd rather you have 70 than to be between 70 and, and 99. The, the next value I like to check is um, HB1AC, which is basically measures how much your 
hemoglobin, which is your oxygen-carrying molecule, has been damaged by glucose. And then uh, when, depending on the country, you know, the alarm point is set differently. Some people it's 5.9, some people say 6.9. But the, the truth of the matter is the lower your score is, the better it is. That means you have less damage done to your hemoglobin. But it, what's interesting is that, you know, when you cut, it's, it, it's a lie detector test for carbohydrate intake. So in other words, you come to see me, let's say you bring a friend who's obese and you say, Charles, take care of him. And I do that test and he's 5.9 and he goes on a low carb diet and he shows up at 6.1 six weeks later. Well, he's a bullshit artist because, <laughs> you know, you cannot fake that test. So one thing that I found over the years is that actually the amount of magnesium, supplemental magnesium you consume is the fastest way to drop that value. So magnesium is probably one of the best anti-aging uh, minerals. And they say that basically you age at the rate you produce insulin. So the HbA1ac will t- tell me what was the average insulin over the last three months, you know. So that's a good key. And another test I really like is the reactive insulin test. So you submit blood uh, for the morning draw, and then you eat two rice cakes with um, jam on it, uh, let's say a tablespoon of jam. And then you wait one hour, and you measure your postprandial uh, insulin, so after the meal. And then that value should be about between 12 and 17. If it's above that, you could have normal, normal morning insulin. But the problem is, is that normal morning insulin is like having a normal ECG. It's quite possible that you have a normal ECG at rest, but you exercise for 10 seconds and your ECG is all over the place, right? So uh, an organ, you can only see if it's really healthy if you stress it, okay? So when you give a dose of really fast carbohydrates in the morning and your insulin goes through the roof, it means that you don't have a good uh, pancreatic health and your insulin resistance is horrendous. So I like that test. But we found, for example, in a lot of physique competitors, they got great morning uh, glucose and insulin, but when you do the reactive test, they fail miserably. So, you know, so what the, a lot of things that make them lean is not actually so healthy for them. So I, I think the reactive insulin test is the most underrated test uh, in health. And how should people select their doctor, the person that will help them administer these tests? Because you and I know there's, there's the good, the bad, and the ugly. I remember this MD friend of mine said, uh, P equals MD, you know, pass equals MD. <laughs> and yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, th- there are a lot of shitty doctors out there. There are also some great doctors. But how, how would you suggest someone find a doctor who can competently administer and interpret these tests? I think the best way to find them over the years is I go to acam.org. So it's the American College for the Advancement of Medicine. It's the college that certifies people do chelation therapy uh, to treat uh, vascular disease. What I found is that the guys who have an interest for that therapy tend to have an interest in functional medicine. So there's a good, it's a good cross-reference. It's not a 100%, uh, but when I tell my students we're asking the exact same question as you to do that, they, in more than 9 out of 10 cases, they report that they're very happy with that new doctor. Um, the thing is, is that the length of time they spent with you on the first visit is probably your best indicator. I find the best doctors out there, 
take about two hours to do a medical history. Uh, another way to find a good one is just ask around. I mean, when people ask me, they say, do you know somebody here? And I say, yeah, I don't know a guy. So in most large American cities, I find someone. But for example, recently, I had a student of mine from Luxembourg uh, who was an MD, and I got talking to him, and I, I realized how way ahead of the curve he was. So there was, you know, a lot of students in a class from 14 different European countries. I say, hey, you guys are looking for a good doctor? Go see him. And then a female doctor from the Netherlands, and she was very open-minded. And, you know, she really was looking for a different way to treat uh, her patients. And then I, so I found somebody in Holland then. So there, there's a lot of good people, but the best is to ask around. But one of the key points is that if they don't do a two-hour medical history, uh, you're not at the right place. Yeah, no, this is, this is, uh, I think worth digging into a little bit because, uh, for instance, I mean, one of the red flags for me, and I'm not a doctor, don't play one mm. on the internet, but mm. I've, I've, uh, broken myself enough <laughs> and done enough experiments that I've, 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 uh, had a chance to sample a lot of doctors at the kind of mm. medical buffet. Mm. Mm. And, um, whenever I have someone respond very definitively to a single blood mm. test, I mm. always get very worried. Mm. Um, they, if they don't ask if I had anything to drink, if I didn't, if I did or did not do a workout before mm. the test, if they don't ask some of those questions, um, and they're simply trying to prescribe some type of medication, say to address, uh, slightly depressed mm. testosterone, well, mm. they're, they're not doing their homework, right? They're not really doing their detective work properly. Um, at least you know, that's my preference, but are there any other kind of red flags or pet peeves that you would use to disqualify doctors? Well, I would truly agree with you. Here's a classic example. There's someone that you and I both know, uh, sends me an email freaking out. He's been diagnosed with cardiovascular disease, blah, 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 blah. And I said, send me your blood work. So he sent it to me. And again, I'm not a doctor, but I asked him, hey, let me guess. You ate before the test and you had a 36 set, 12 reps per workout uh, per exercise before you did the test. And he goes, how'd you know? Well, because of blah, 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 blah. And I said, that test is not valid. Redo the test, 12 hour fast, and then send it to me and I'll find you the, the right doctor. So, you know, the, the, the point is, is that the, the doctor read the test, told me he was going to die. And I, said, <laughs> and I said, no, because you've biased the test by doing these two stupid things. And the doctor should have asked you, did you exercise? Did you eat before the meal? Was that, a, you know, whatever. So, um, in, in, I agree with you 100%, Tim. The, there's some basic questions that we should ask to eliminate error. You know, one thing that I in, insist on is that they always do it 12, exactly 12 hours after the last bite. Why? Because I want pre and post measures that are valid. Because, you know, you could, your gluc morning glucose could be all over the place because you fasted an extra two hours and yeah, it's not yeah. valid. Yeah, totally agree. And this is, this is, I, I, and I, I don't want to, harp on this too much, but I think it's really important. So it's worth underscoring for people. And that is the, uh, well, th let me bitch for a second first mm -hmm. in that the, the same people who would criticize you for not, mm -hmm. uh, sort of walking a, a strict line with clinical studies mm -hmm. are the same people who don't pay attention to any of these variables when they're dealing with their patients directly. And it, it's just, it makes me insane because you have to control these variables. Like you said, it can't, you can't have one blood test six hours after you ate because you had a late night and ate a burrito after getting shit faced. Mm -hmm. And then the next time do it on a Wednesday after no drinking after 12 hour fast, you those that's apples to oranges. And 
you're not going to be able to get any good data out of that. Um, but the, um, for, for people out there, I mean, the one thing that I've always asked friends, cause I, I, people come to me just as they, your friends come to you and they're like, Oh my God, I'm freaking out. My doctor wants to do A, B, C, D and E. And like I said, everybody just so, so I don't have to deal with the stupid, um, legal issues. I'm not a doctor, but what, what, well, what I'll, what I'll ask is I'll say, well, when did you take, what day of the week did you take the last test? And when did you take this test? And, and lo and behold, it's almost always like after a, a shitty three days of, of sleep or it's after, uh, binge drinking for two nights and their testosterone drops 200 points. And also the blood test was done at say like 10 AM instead of 8 AM. And I'm like, all right, well <laughs> you can't, you have to have some standardization for these numbers to be meaningful in any way. It's very true because alcohol, for example, if, you know, I used to train a lot of uh, pro athletes, but they would have, let's say a stag party in Vegas what goes on in Vegas stays in Vegas. But by Monday when they gave blood work, I could tell they were in Vegas. Just, you know, and there's things like, for example, a massage could throw your CPK through the roof if it was fairly aggressive. And then people say, well, you know, you, you, you have a kidney issue or whatever they, their bias is. And for example, in liver enzymes, I get this one all the time. My liver enzymes are elevated. So then I tell, I send this study from Sweden People lift weights three days a week, have chronically 20% higher than normal elevation in liver enzymes, and it's non-pathological. So I say, show that to your doctor before they put you on some liver drug, you know? So the the thing, though, is that it's not the doctor's fault. Like you say, P equals MD. So the thing is, is that they're not forced to keep up with the literature. And we know that the books they study in medical school are already nine years outdated. So for example, if you look at Blastus' Ominous, if you look I'm at I'm sorry, the, if we look at what was that? Blastus' Ominous, one of the intestinal uh, pathogen, mm-hmm. you, according to the most recent book on parasitology, it's not bad for you, you should not be treated. But there's good studies done on uh, Iraq war veterans that show that that uh, intestinal pathogen leads to degeneration of eyesight because it blocks the absorption of vitamin A and it also leads to uh, degeneration of joints. But there's two good papers that are published in 94 that are not in the book of parasitology. But so we're looking at 2015 and the research was done in 94 and it's not even in the current books that medical students read. So a lot of people have you know, could have bad eyesight or osteoarthritis from untreated intestinal pathogen, you know, and then they tell me there's no research on that. There is research. I mean, the thing, one of the most common comments is there's no research on that. Uh, dude, did you even try to look at it? So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and then there's, for example, there was some guy on harping on that my doses of leucine were too high. They were not backed up by research. Well, the two best research papers on leucine in really hard training people were done by the same group of researchers in France. They only published the results in French. So I can't blame for the guy to say he didn't read. He could say at least I didn't read anything on it, but to say that it doesn't exist is a lie because it did exist. You know, Where, where are your favorite sort of go-to sources for doing searches for research i mean there's pubmed of course uh but but um what 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 are sort of your go-to top sources 
actually my top source is PubMed. But the thing is, is that you have to learn a few things about how to search. For example, Shishandra berry, which is a great herb uh, to treat um, too much oxidation in the liver, right? Well, there's 88 synonyms for it in the literature. Uh, if you look at uh, Oli Basil, it has so many different names. So what I use is uh, a product called a natural uh, database, and then they give you all the synonyms for each uh, natural compound, and then I search under uh, the different ones. Because, for example, for Oli Basil, you can find a lot of research, but the the um, it's not it's not the this is the most commonly used name in English, but you have to look under the different indie names for it to find all the research because a lot of research clinically on it was done in India or done in Thailand and it's peer reviewed, but they don't use only basil as a key word. So, you know, you, the, the natural medical database is a good tool for finding out the synonyms if you're looking at a nutrient, but the, nobody beats PubMed in my opinion. Yeah. It's, this is really, um, excellent advice. And I just want to kind of reiterate for folks that you, you have to search for the synonyms. Not only that, I mean, so for instance, you can take like alpha lipoic acid and then thioctic acid or whatever, yeah. but, but not only that, but like you said, if you have studies being done in say India, uh, with Ayurvedic medicine, like what are the herbs that contain a lot of fill in the blank, right? So you can find yeah. these natural sources, which then are also sometimes studied, even if the isolated nutrients aren't studied. And it sounds like a lot of work, but it's not, it's not that time consuming. Once you just have you know, step one for the checklist, there's a great book called the checklist manifesto that I thought. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. yeah That's but, one of my favorite books. Oh, uh, so good by Tool Gawande, uh, who's an MD. And so it's like, what is your checklist for doing research? It's like, okay, number one, go to natural database, find some synonyms, right? Then go to uh, PubMed and do this following search. And then if you've read, say, uh, bad medicine, it's like, okay, what filters do I run this through? What are the five to 10 questions that I ask myself to make sure I don't fool myself, right? You know, is this intravenous? How is it delivered, right? You can't just take oral dosages and, uh, or intravenous dosages and assume that you're going to get the same effect from oral consumption, right? Exactly. Um, question for you on, um, hormone replacement therapy. So a lot of, yeah. a lot of people are fascinated by hormone replacement therapy. Mm. Um, uh, how have your thoughts on hormone replacement therapy, uh, changed or evolved? Uh, and, and we could make it specific to guys, but we don't have to. It's, uh, well, I think that there's a stronger place for it than ever before because, you know, it, it, people ask you, well, it's not natural, blah, blah, blah. Okay, all right. Let's go back a second here. One thing that distinguishes humans from animals is goal setting and progress. Okay, so I don't think eagles gather up together in January and say, okay, this year let's eat 78% more rats and I want to expand, <laughs> right? Yeah. So, they, I mean... Animals that do are animals that do what they do, but we, whoever you want to blame for, we're blessed with a brain that can learn and evolve. And then the, the reality is, is in, and this is the World Health uh, Organization statistics, this average testosterone level has decreased 1% per year since 1950. So what was considered good testosterone levels, and then the norms tend to change per country. So for example, uh, DHA sulfate in the UK 
If you have between 1.6 to 1.8, it's good. If you have 1.9, you consider to have high elevated androgens. But in Canada, the norms are 3 to 10. So if you're a British male at 1.9, you don't exist in the medical norms in Canada, okay? So you don't qualify as a male. Uh, you may be a male in the UK, but you're not a male in Canada. So, <laughs> so the, the, the reality is that, okay, we, we've softened up on the norms, but we should look at optimal versus uh, normal, right? So with hormone therapy, one thing we'll also know is we have 100 times more stress than our grandparents. Our grandparents didn't have iPhones. They didn't have to answer 70 emails an hour, blah, 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 blah. So, uh, and there's also the radiation, which is now more and more well-documented. And all these things uh, suppress testosterone. So HRT, I think, is viable, but you have, it's like your carbohydrates. You need to deserve it. So, for example, I see a lot of kids who go on growth hormone, and they're, they're still making plenty. And by doing growth hormone too early, they're actually shutting down their production. Same thing with testosterone. But the, the attitude varies a lot from country to country. For example, there used to be a drug uh, in France called Parabolin, which is Trembolone. I forget the uh, exact extra. But if you look in the compendium in the 80s, they, they would encourage doctors to give the kids who were bullied at school so they could race. <laughs> Trembolone. Oh, my God. So basically they said the, the, the attitude was different. Like, okay, the kid has low muscle mass, low self-esteem, put him on Trembolone. So, <laughs> <laughs> but, God. you know, an American doctor that would do that would get, you know, castrated and yeah, sent to yeah, jail for yeah, 40 years, yeah, right? Just to put this in perspective for people. So Trembolone, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, pretty – it's hard for a lot of people to come by who are, say, like world-class powerlifters. So they'll take they'll take capsules that are intended to be injected into cattle <laughs> and basically, you know, dissolve them into a liquid so they can inject them. And this was – so this was prescribed to children who were getting bullied. Yeah. So, you know, you know, trembling in bodybuilding world, the profiting world is one of the most potent drugs, right? But the attitude was very different. There's a friend of mine who's a pharmacist who has actually studied that, that uh, concept. And he said, like, attitude towards drugs is very different. For example, in a lot of South American countries, they think that putting stenalazole in multivitamins for kids is good so they can, <laughs> so they can gain weight. But the thing with... Uh, HRT, what, what I see is that a lot of people jump on a bandwagon because they can make money and, and charge, you know, a horrendous price for testosterone. And then, which is, makes, costs $2 uh, a cc to make and they charge you $150 a cc. But the, the, um, uh, the therapies, the, I would say in the US, there's probably only three guys that know how to do it properly. And so if I have an executive that says to me, you know, my, my testosterone is the same as a Catholic uh, church mouse, what could I do? Well, I send them to these three docs and they do a good job, but they, the, uh, it takes monitoring. You have to monitor your estrogens. You have to monitor your cardiovascular factors and so on. Uh, but if it's done properly, it's very good. I think that the more exciting realm now is actually the use of peptides. Um, but the peptides, it's the the frontier right now, you know, everybody's, but I've met a guy in Australia recently who probably has done the most clinical research on it. And when he explained to me how to use them, his view on how to use them at the time, them was diametrically opposite to uh, 
what the cowboys on the internet recommend. <laughs> but but when I was in the waiting room, it was the who's who of the strength world was waiting for an appointment. So obviously his clinical experience was very good. And then, um, but he was really, really uh, far ahead. But for example, for repairing joints, you know, there's two peptides are getting a lot of the, and they work very well. Uh, now they're just for research purposes, but I think that HRT, if it's done properly, it's quite validated. As long as you're not in a, uh, drug tested sport. If you're a 40 year old stockbroker and you have zero sex drive and you've shaped like a Perrier water bottle, then yeah, go get some testosterone therapy because, but you know, the other thing is that and I think is underestimated is the balance between DHA sulfate and the testosterone. And that has to be kept in balance because DHA sulfate is the mother of all androgens. And if you don't take care of that at the same time, you can get into a lot of trouble. So, what uh, could you elaborate on? Uh, what because uh, what type of trouble? Well, for example, you know, every molecule can be linked to an emotion, and you really think about. It. I mean, Candice Pert wrote a whole book on that. But DHA sulfate is the molecule, I think, for me, of motivation, or one of them. Okay, and if you take so much tests that you don't have enough DHA sulfate, you could you just a big lug with you know no drive. So. Uh, you have to keep the DHA sulfate. And also, you have to balance that with how much uh, salivary cortisol you make. It's not... Uh, you, when you look at hormone therapy, you can't look at the world through a straw. In other words, taking a shitload of testosterone is not going to solve your problems. The best guy, uh, the, the best educator on HRT is Thierry Ertog from Belgium. He lectures all over the world. How do you spell his name, Charles? Thierry is T-H-I-E-R-R-Y and his family name is H-E-R-T-O-G-U-E or T-H-O-G-U-E. Thierry Ertog. And he's... Um, I'm glad I asked. I never would have got it complex. <laughs> okay. Yeah, but he's easily found on... Uh, he teaches all over the world. He's probably teaching three weekends out of four, always to endocrinologists or the anti-aging circle. But, you know, he'll talk about, for example, balancing things like uh, oxytocin uh, with your testosterone. So he has a, a very good approach and uh, he's big on monitoring where you store your body fat uh, as it relates to hormones. He, he has... I mean, his books are very expensive, but they're really worth the investment. But he, he'll explain how hormone deficiencies manifest in physically outward symptoms. Like, what happens when you GH? This is what happens to you. If you if you have too much GH, this is what happens to you. If you don't have T three, you too much T three. So he he, is, he has made a lot of links between physical medicine and endocrinology, and that's why he's very well respected. Uh, and I find the best endocrinologist I've studied under him because he has a very um, eagle's view of the hormonal system. It's not like looking at the world through a straw. Oh, yeah, you're low in test air. Take a gram of test a week. Like you take a gram of test a week. 
and you don't control your estrogens, you'll have bigger tits than Pamela Anderson within a month. You know. <laughs> well, I not, mean, not, well, not to mention, I mean, your lipid profile is going to. Uh, I mean, yeah, your 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 lipids are not going to look so so impressive. And your nipples the size of frisbees. So you know, <laughs> and maybe that's one of your goals in life. I don't know, but the the point is, is that HRT is a viable tool. It has to be done properly, and it's if the guy just comes in and tests your tests and he wants to give you a prescription, run out of there because he needs to look at a lot of things. Yeah, yeah, no, completely. Let me ask you just a, a random question. I mean, I talked about this very openly in the Four Hour Body. This is something that bugs me. We can bitch and moan uh, about the internet another time, but the fact that I wrote an entire, I wrote an entire, I think four or five pages on like Anabolics One Hundred and One. Yeah. And on Wikipedia, it says Tim Ferriss ads- admits to have used <laughs> anabolic agents. And I'm like, admits is such a weaselly word. I wrote a f- yeah. fucking chapter about it. So I've used different anabolics uh, it, 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 with medical supervision after surgeries. And um, one of the uh, – I, I don't know if it's an urban myth or just one of the common beliefs among athletes is that decadrablin helps with joint repair. But I've never been able to – come up with a plausible explanation for why nandrolone versus other things would have that effect. And I'm just curious if you think that has any validity and if so, what the plausible explanation might be. Actually, there is a paper on that. Uh, it's about five years old. Um, I, I dug it on actually PubMed. The, the, after we do the call, I'll, I'll, I'm pretty sure I got it in my uh, an email because a, a medical doctor asked me a question and out of interest, I did find the paper. This, according to urban legend, you know, you have more fluid in the joint, which decohabs the joint, which allows the cartilage to regenerate, blah, 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 blah. But, um, this particular study was on the regeneration of connective tissue and they did, they did find a positive influence from, I think in the study was nandrolone phenylpropionate if my memory serves me right. But the, um, I mean, okay, again, you have clinical versus anecdotal evidence, but many old-time powerlifters will tell you that when they self-administered nandrolone drugs, they did uh, see a decrease in joint pain. But I do know there's at least one Swedish study on the benefits of nandrolone in uh, joint health. Cool. I'll check it out. Uh, yeah, nandrolone is just also, I, I mean, I've always, uh, I guess it's probably a legal issue. Uh, and, and just for those people listening who are like, let me run out and buy some nandrolone. Yeah. Uh, the, the legal side effects of trying to do this stuff on the black market can be uh, just as harsh as the physical side effects of using them improperly. Mm-hmm. So caveat mm-hmm. emptor, don't, uh, you know, go find your local meathead and just inject whatever um, you know, cooking, <laughs> cooking oil, he happens to sell you, but, uh, you know, nandrolone, I find really interesting just from the standpoint of, um, aromatization and dealing with some of these other issues, um, mm. th- that you mentioned, but anyway, that's a whole separate conversation with, but on the, uh, kind of non, um, non-drug standpoint or, or from that perspective, what are approaches that you take what what are things that you eliminate from your household or try to avoid whether that's due to environmental estrogens or you know phytoestrogens or whatever the hell synthetic estrogens or otherwise um what what are things that you keep try to keep out of your house or away from your your body well the thing is is that there's quite a few 
estrogens that come in form of cosmetic shampoos and so on. So a, a very simple tool is to go to ewg.org and they rank uh, in quality all the common household products, shampoos, moisturizers, or whatever. So, for example, there's one that comes to mind that is given for free in the Canada's biggest health chain. It has uh, five types of parabenes, and parabenes is linked to all forms of cancer, but it got five isomeres of parabene in it. Uh, I'm not going to name the company, but it's a very well-known company. So people go get buffed at, at the gym in Toronto. They take a shower, and winter is dry, so they've got dry skin. They put that thing in, and they're basically lathering on <laughs> crushed forms of uh, oral contraceptives. So, yeah. <laughs> so, so, you know, so I only buy organic, uh, certified organic products for body care. Um, my, actually the, my maid at the house is very conscious of that stuff. So she only uses the best products and everything is verified with ew.org and it's free. So, uh, and it's high quality. Uh, I've donated that to them in the past. I think it's a great organization. Uh, the thing is, is that I've learned this from you actually is the concept of batching. So I batch my email work, I batch my cell phone work. So I try to minimize all radiation forms as much as possible. Um, over the last three years, I always take the month of July off, and that's when I have time to read stuff for my upcoming classes. And three years ago, I started to look at the research, peer-reviewed research on um, electromagnetic pollution. And it was quite a bit staggering. A lot of the leading work has been done in France, but it's not encouraging by any means. Um, things like uh, dopamine, you know what I call phantom message watching. So a lot of people will look at their iPhone, for example, to see if they've got a message. They don't batch it, so they, they're obsessed with or they want to see who posted what on Facebook. They found in Korea that it actually messes up with dopamine receptor site location and it puts people into a, a state of hyper um, vigilantism, you know. So they they always they're basically like a Navy SEAL in the middle of Iraq, uh, hanging by their toes on a clothesline with an American flag on their back, you know. So they're always ready for battle, and there's no need for it. So uh, I found one of the best ways to actually manage stress, which I learned from the Four Hour Week, was to batch my emails, batch my cell phone uh, work. And I found it's a great stress reducer. And of course, biggest added benefit is you're far more productive. You know, um, the, the food, the quality of the food, you could say I'm quite uh, uh, enthusiastic about. <laughs> uh, so I, what I, you know, what you put in your mouth is a stressor and what you say that comes out of your mouth is also a stressor. So at least you have control on both. So when I'm here uh, in the U.S., it's very easy for me to have the best food. But when I travel overseas, actually where I teach is dictated by the, the quality of the food. So, for example, I partnered up with Nick Mitchell for his ultimate performance gym in Marbella. Because A, I don't mind sunshine. I'd rather teach in sunshine. So I do most of my European seminars now in Spain. But in Spain, I found this guy, uh, Michael Antonio, who finds me 
boar and deer and, you know, and the quality of fish is very good. So if I teach six weeks in Spain, I get the best food. Uh, if I teach in Northern Europe, I'll either go to Denmark or Sweden for the same thing because it's basically good quality. But in England, it is a challenge, but still feasible. I've, edu- I've educated enough students that they've dug out the best places. You know, even when I was in Manchester uh, two weeks ago, I could find some good food. So it's um, the Europeans are catching on quicker to this and the Southwest of the U S. So for example, if you go to Phoenix, it's pretty easy to eat organic. You go to Rhode Island or Boston, you should all luck, you know, it's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, when you think of the, the typical gym in the U S let's just say what, what drives you nuts about warm ups? What are people doing incorrectly for warm ups for weight training? Uh, the foam roller. That is such a waste of time. And plus, it leads to more scar tissue. So I only like the foam roller to distract vertebrae. That's about it. Um, <laughs> the the, the warm ups, okay, it's very good at evidence by Magda Addis that warming up on a treadmill or using the treadmill precipitates insulin resistance by 46%. So all electronic cardio equipment, in my opinion, should be banned. So let's say tomorrow you name me emperor of all galaxies and I've got all power. I would take all that cardio stuff and throw out of gyms. Uh, I would just replace it with strong man equipment. Uh, the also the, the concept of training your core using unstable surfaces. If you look at the actual research, we'll find it, it helps for about six weeks, but after that, there's no added benefit. And the best way to strengthen your core is are the compound exercises like squats, deadlift, chin-ups, dips, and so on. So uh, what drives me crazy is the gyms where I go and everything is done. Like you'll see a, a woman do a, on a BOSU ball on one leg doing a contralateral dumbbell curl and switch legs and arms. You know, what does that do? Fuck all. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you should be better learning how to squat properly and do a set of 20 to exhaustion. That will bring it, you know, more heat shock proteins, which are been associated with uh, fat loss and muscle building. So the, the there's actually uh, a trend now. There's two gym chains around the world that have hired me to develop educational seminars to get rid of all those balanced exercises. <laughs> uh, one of them that leads to education is a student of mine and he just won a bodybuilding contest and his physique changed completely. And, and even now the owners of the chain are going, wow, you know, uh, what changes do you make? So I start to do real strength training. And um, so, and then one of the biggest chains in England, was also asking me to revamp uh, that system because the, the rule is it's like the basics are the basics and you can't beat the basics. And uh, as my first mentor told me, there's three rules of success in strength training. One is hard work. Two is hard work. Three is hard work. So you can't replace quality hard work. You know? And if so, if you were designing the the perfect warm up routine, 
So you were able to, you know, throw the Bosu balls in the dumpster. Mm. You're able to get rid of all of the cardio equipment. Mm. Um, and let's just, for the sake of simplicity, say someone, and you can tear this apart, but just because people mm. have heard of it, I'll say somebody's getting ready for like a five by five squat mm. workout. Let's just say, what uh, would you have them do? Any particular type of warm up? The perfect warm up. Yes, of course. Because there's there's two rules about warming up. The brain should know what the range of motion is. And two, that the weight's going to get heavier. So, so for example, you want to do five by five at 100 kilos at 220 pounds. So you go to the gym. If it's squats, well, there's a lot of research that shows that mobility in the ankle is what uh, decreases uh, the probability of any lower extremity injuries, whether it's ACL tear or hamstring pull or groin tear or whatever. So the first thing I would do is I would go on a calf machine and stretch the calves, uh, and then go down all the, uh, statically the stretch for eight seconds. Then I finish off with a, a voluntary contraction because it resets, uh, the pattern, uh, for strength. Research is clear. If you do static stretching, you don't finish with a contraction, you're more likely to get injured. So you do the eight second stretch, let's just say at the bottom of yeah. the calf machine, and then you would go up to sort of a peak hold or is it just yeah, one? You, you, you concentrate on, on lifting the weight, actively contracting, uh, the calf. So the weight should be enough to stretch you. If it's heavy enough to stretch you, you won't be able to lift it, but you should do a voluntary contraction for two seconds at the end of the stretch to reactivate, uh, the power in the muscle. So I would make my ankles flexible. Then I would take the bar and depending on which muscles are tight, let's say if it's quad or hamstrings or whatever, I would do the same principle, get into a uh, position where I would basically do PNF stretching, right? And then uh, do those exercises. Then I'm mobile for the range of motion. Then if the goal is 100 kilos for five sets of five, then the first warm-up set would be the bar, just the bar four reps, then I would go to 60 kilos, which is 60%. So my body knows what the range of motion is, then I put 60 kilos, which is 60%. I would only do about three reps, then I would go to 75 kilos, I would do two reps, I'd go to uh, 85 kilos, do one rep, 90 kilos, do one rep, 95 kilos, do one rep. So all those weights just tell me the weight is gonna be coming soon. And then squat 100 kilos for five sets of five. So. I've accomplished my goal. I know what the range of motion is, which allows me to have great mechanics. And then I, um, I warmed up psychologically and physiologically speaking to handle the weight. Some people do what they call over warm up. So if they want to train at a hundred, they'll do a set, let's say 95, then they go to 110 to activate the nervous system, but they only do one rep. So they don't really go to failure. They just tell the body, Hey, hundred kilos is going to feel lighter. The, uh, Paul Carter is a big advocate of this, but the first time I read it was from a, a, weight, a powerlifting coach in 1973. I mean, that's when the article was published, but it was from Finland. And they have a name in it in Finnish, which has about 96 letters, but it means, pro, <laughs> it mean, it means proprioception set. Um, huh. So, Perps, uh, yeah, proprioception set. Okay. So to make it show is P set. But that's a way to warm up uh, where you go o- over uh, the set. I mean, and then it's one thing. Paul Carter figured it out by himself, but 
uh, there's such a thing as universal intelligence. There's nothing new, really. So, you know, I could find in 73, and that's all the research I did on it, but maybe somebody figured it out in 1908 by himself. I mean, in my house here, I got everything that's ever been waiting on weight training since 1896, multiple languages. Like, for example, Fred, Frederick de Lavie's Anatomy books, I got them in 15 different languages. Okay, so <laughs> so it, it just, I find it's a good way. You know, I love learning languages, but you, you should learn things you're passionate about. So, you know, I think that you can learn a lot of grammar on like explaining how so, somebody ought to squat, right? So like you learn directions and whatever. So I, uh, I've used that as a tool for learning languages. But the point is, is that when people say, oh, I've invented this, I say, bullshit. Like it was invented in Egypt, 1923 or 1908 by Bob Peoples or whatever it is. It, the, the, what's new is combinations, um, you know, or applications, but like uh, fat grip dumbbells is not new. I mean, that's 1896. So um, what I did for the fat grip dumbbells, I made them revolve so they're easier on their joints. So I designed them for uh, Watson gym equipment. They're calibrated, they're nuclear attack resistant, blah, 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 blah. But all I did is made some... Uh, ameliorations, yeah. Right, a new application of an old idea. Yes, yes, but there's nothing new in weight training. So, so, so speaking of uh, the the squat routine that you sort of led up to, what are the most common mistakes that people make after they finish their work sets or or after a workout for that matter? I am a really, really big believer, Tim, in immediate recovery. That's from personal experience. Okay. I mean, there's some research from Australia and South Africa to back me up, but over the years is cortisol used to be considered the enemy. Now in the last four years, we figured out that the more cortisol you make during training, the greater training response. So people used to take cortisol blockers before training. That's stupid. It leads to no gains, but I think that the effect of the cortisol is transitory. So you induce the message, then you got to get rid of the message. Okay. So, uh, you know, um, as, uh, what's that guy? Uh, Charlie Sheen. I don't pay women to have sex. I pay them to leave after sex. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, cortisol is like that. It's like the prostitute. That, <laughs> you got to get rid of the, of, uh, the prostitute. So you got to get rid of the cortisol. So, <laughs> I know my analogies are a bit up there, but people like graphic stuff. So they remember far better. So you want to get rid of cortisol. So in my opinion is you got to suppress cortisol immediately after exercise. Um, of course, you know, people will say, well, why don't you put that down that? Hey, I don't think my less than 17 sports. That's my data. So I've tried not to do it. And I, you know, I, I've gone away from it. I've tried different ways, but I really believe you've got to bring that cortisol down. The best way to do that is to make yourself more insulin sensitive. So you do, you go through your steps to make yourself insulin sensitive, but if somebody who trains really hard, let's say he weighs 200 pounds. I really like to have uh, 200 grams of a carbohydrate blend right after exercise with about 50 grams of a high quality protein. A lot of people are intolerant to weigh and they don't even know. I really like uh, essential amino acid blends. So if you're a 200-pound man, 
I, I developed a product for ATP lab of a can. It's called Pentacarb. It has cyclic dextrins, some dextrose, and three forms of uh, non-GMO uh, maltodextrin. I give that to people with uh, about 50 grams of essential aminos in most cases. If they can handle the whey protein, I give them the whey protein because it's way cheaper. Or sometimes I give them goat whey because they're not intolerant to goat whey, but they may be intolerant to cow's whey. Where does someone find goat whey, just out of curiosity? I mean, I make no money telling you this, but my favorite brand is Tierra's Whey. T-I-E-R-R-A. Uh, apostrophe S, Whey. You can find it at Whole Foods, but on Amazon, they'll split your ass to ship it to you within 24 hours. Uh, that's, that's, where I, that's where I get mine. Um, and it's, I find it personally to be more anabolic than, uh, cow's way. That's my personal preference, but I use, uh, uh, for my amino acids, one of my students out of Germany makes, uh, amino acid slash electrolyte complex. And I use that. I mean, I, it's something I never ran out. It's, I, I come back from a trip. I put two canisters back into my luggage. I don't want to forget it. So. And with, with say the pentacarb, just yeah. so, just so people don't uh, take uh, take the the wrong or interpret it the wrong way. Mm-hmm. At, at what point have you earned that? Say you know two hundred grams of carbohydrates, fifty grams of protein, for instance, if you're a, a larger athlete. Because I know that you, I'm sure you've seen it. I've seen it. I go to the gym. I see somebody do ten minutes on an elliptical while watching you know, part of a game of Thrones, they get off and they, they drink 500 calories of carbohydrates. Yeah. No. Um, at when, when does it make sense to consume this post, uh, this post workout? And when does it not make sense? You have to, you have to deserve your carbs. And I'll repeat myself on that. And to deserve that many carbs post exercise, you need to be sub 10% body fat. And the quickest way to know if you have sub 10 body fat as a male is, can I see the linear alba on your abs? In other words, can I see all ab rows? One ab row doesn't count. <laughs> you gotta see them all. Okay. <laughs> so in other words, you have to have penis skin on your abs. Uh, <laughs> 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 you know, if you could pitch an inch, you certainly don't deserve carbohydrates. So, you know, if you, if you could see visibly your abs, then that's when you deserve it. Until then, I said, I think you should stick to, uh, either whey or essential amino acids and more branch chains and some glutamine because you don't deserve it. But one of the things that increases anabolism is to be insulin sensitive. What makes you insulin sensitive? Losing body fat. I mean, uh, Nick Mitchell sent me some pictures yesterday of this uh, journalist that he's training. And this guy looked at a human foie gras and in nine weeks, the guy's got abs, right? I mean, <laughs> He was considering calling his book Arthur Paul Chaturd, but uh, <laughs> no kidding. But the thing is, is that he took this guy who looks horrendous and it's all documented. So there's no like Photoshop and bullshit. And he took him from a, I would estimate a 23% body fat to a 9% body fat in nine weeks. What do you do? You restricted his carbs, but now that he's lean, he's jacked up his carbs. So you got to deserve your carbs. But until you, you know, if you don't deserve it, don't have them. You just get fatter. What um, what are some commonly neglected ways to decrease body fat aside from restricting carbohydrates? I think that the biggest mistake is to do steady state cardio. You want to get fatter, go right ahead. 
the second most biggest mistake is to use the low-fat approach. So some people will restrict their carbohydrates, but they restrict their fats too. So that's a big mistake. If you're going to go high-protein, low-carb, you need to have high-fat uh, so you cook your meats in olive oil and butter and uh, you put butter on your vegetables and so on and you take coconut oil and uh, that would help you uh, get more insulin sensitive. The thing too is decreasing cortisol. Cortisol is a great enemy when we're talking about ins- developing insulin resistance. How do, you de- how do you decrease cortisol? Well, you manage your stress. How do you manage your stress? Well, you, you get effective work habits. You eliminate distractions. When you're at work, turn off your email. Only answer your email right before lunch and right before you leave work. I mean, there's a lot of ways to manage your stress. One of the books I really like and I recommend to all my students is 59 Seconds from Richard Wiseman. Oh, I've never heard of it. Yeah. Okay, Tim, you got to read that book. It, 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 I would say it's one of those best books you could ever read because what he does, he, he takes a critical look at the self-help industry. And one of the tests he makes you do, he describes 10 self-help techniques that are repeated over and over uh, in the self-help literature. And he asks you to identify which ones work. I won't tell you the answer, but I I 100% on the test because I was identified the ones that don't work and the ones that do work. So for example, one of the common ones that you read in every book Imagine the body that you want, blah, blah, blah. You know, that's, well, <laughs> all it does is it encourages you to be delusional. What works is a plan with an action step. You want to get lean, you need a plan. If you uh, fail to plan, you plan to fail. So, and in the book, what he does, is he, he answered a challenge from his friend, Sophie. Sophie said, I'm busy. I want to help myself, but I want stuff that is science-based and I want to uh, not take a lot of time. So he says, so I could give you an answer under one minute. She goes, that's right. So that's why the book is called 59 Seconds. And in the book, it'll go over anything from building relationships to uh, goal setting. And he destroys a lot of myths about goal setting and these bullshit studies that were never actually done. And But he does everything uh, so you would love it. And I'll talk about anything from increasing your height, your odds to getting picked up when you hitchhike to whatever. It's a very, he's a very funny guy. And he's written a lot of very good books. Uh, he's the one who wrote Quirkology. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's a magician besides being a PhD in, in psychology. And you can see his magic tricks on YouTube. He's a pretty interesting guy. He's, um, so that's probably the best self-help book, but I tell people, if you really want to change, read that book. Um, 59 Seconds. Yeah, by Richard Wiseman. Very cool. What, um, what other books do you gift the most to other people or recommend the most? I give that one often. The other one I really like to give is The One Thing. Mm-hmm. I'm actually uh, lecturing with one of the authors in Texas uh, in November. So if you want to join up, it just go look at... Um, the uh, powerful executive.com. Uh, there will be a page with how to register. But uh, Jay Papasan wrote the one thing with uh, Gary Keller. Um, uh, it's very similar actually to four hour work week in a lot of points. I mean, success rules are success rules, right? Uh, but when I read your book uh, and I tell my students to buy your book, what I learned from you 
was I worked way too hard and had no fun in my life. So, <laughs> so after reading your book and Jay Papasan and Gary Keller recommend the first thing you should plan in a year is your vacation. So after reading both of these books, I mean, when I'm at home, I work two and a half to four hours max. I take the month of July off. I take the first two weeks of August off. I don't work the month of December until about uh, end of January. And a week a month, I take off. Okay. I've never done that in my life unless until the last four years. But what I learned with the one thing is that you have to pick one activity per day that will change the rest of your life. So for example, doing a podcast with you is my one thing today because you're a very popular author. I mean, Schwarzenegger, who's another one of my heroes, was uh, on your podcast recently. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, Arnold Schwarzenegger is probably the most inspiring man you could listen to. I was very fortunate to be invited by Tony Doherty to teach at the Arnold Classic last March in Australia. And on Sunday morning, there was a small group of us uh, who were invited to listen to Arnold Schwarzenegger. And coming out of that lecture, I don't think in my life I've ever been that fired up. What I like about Schwarzenegger, he's very honest. And the thing he talked the most about was actually his mistakes. And, uh, you know, it takes balls to do that. And um, all you learn from them and so on. So the, the, uh, but the one thing is one of my favorite books I tell my students because it gets you organized and makes you focused. Um, it, 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 uh, success rules are universal. You know. No, it's just like strength training. Like you said, mm. I think there are, there are old ideas and new applications. And uh, I remember I was on the BBC once and it was, it was kind of funny because I knew that they were going to set me up. Uh, they were, it was a, it was a segment on self-help and I was like, okay, well, if it's, if, if they're calling it self-help, this is going to be an attack piece. And I knew it was, yeah. I was, I knew it was coming. So I sat down and they were like, so Mr. Ferris, you know, and they said this in the, in the most British way imaginable. I mean, it was very polite, but very condescending. Yeah. <laughs> and they said, not all British people are, are like that, but it is a superpower in the UK. And, um, and they said, uh, so how would you defend, you know, uh, people in the self-help genre who this, this, and this? And I said, I wouldn't. I think they're full of shit. <laughs> and I said, I think that for the most part, you know, you should only take advice from people who have a track record mm. of implementing that same advice. And, uh, you know, if I identify more with, uh, or if, if, if you ask me who my favorite self-help author is, I'd probably say Ben Franklin, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, that's right. I'm looking back or Seneca, maybe, you know, yeah, I'd really rewind the clock. And I think that the one thing uh, is is just the title itself, after you've read the book, mm-hmm. I think is very helpful because whether you look at Seneca, you look at some of the top performing CEOs in Silicon Valley who actually have lives outside of the businesses they're building, they're constantly asking a question that is some variant of, like, what is the one thing on this list that really matters, right? What is the one thing on this list that will make all the other things easier, or unimportant, or whatever? Right? There's there's always some variation to that question. Correct. And it's, um, but I, I I think it's it's so valuable for people to hear you say what you did, which is you're planning vacation first, right? You're blocking mm-hmm. out times for the fun things because if you don't do that, then work will simply swell to fill those times and fill those those voids. What do you do with your, uh, when you take say the month off, what are the, what are the things that you now do? 
Well, I'll give you an example. My daughter loves martial arts. And the last two summers, we went to Sweden, in Stockholm, and she trained with this uh, sensei in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And so she trained three times a day, twice, uh, twice in jiu-jitsu, once in lifting. And, but in between, we would do uh, things like visit biking museums. We would do some type of touristic learning experience, right? And we'd go off, uh, visit the islands off Stockholm for one day, whatever that is. I think that, you know, when I'm raising her, I, I try to make her visit as many countries as possible every year so that she doesn't, you know, 80% of 15-year-old Americans can't put the U.S. on the world map, that's that's a big issue. So, you know, by going here, there, and then every day, ask her three questions. And, you know, I always ask her, and I've been in that since she's a toddler, since she could speak, is one is, what have you done today to help someone? And then she'll say whatever. And then the second question is always, what has someone done nice for you today or to help you out? And then the third question is always, what did you learn? And then, you know, so one time we went to visit a lady while we were in London who's an expert on mammals. She wrote a book on mammals that my daughter read when she was five or six years old. And so I, I booked a brain picking fee with a lady. She, she was kind of puzzled why I wanted to do that. And I asked my daughter, I said, you could ask her whatever uh, uh, you want about animals. And then she, you uh, know, and the lady was surprised how much she, my daughter knew about things and how smart the questions were. But, you know, a life not examined is not a, worth, a life worth living. So I think it's really important that you pause at the end of the day to see what have you done. And, I, you know, I religiously uh, donate 10% of what I make to different causes. So, for example, on the weekend, I adopted another tiger. And uh, this afternoon, when we hang up, I'm making a donation to the Navy SEAL Foundation. So it's really important that one of the principles in life, if you want to be successful, is to give what you want. So if you give away money, you'll receive money. Uh, if you, I like that. You know, I like that. Yeah. yeah. So you know, if you're not willing to give it away, you won't attract it. I know that sounds a bit okay, but it's very true. And my father taught me that a long time ago. He, he had the same practice. But I remember in university having zero money. I mean. I was so poor, the furniture was painted on the walls, you know. So <laughs> I, uh, I donated 150 bucks, I had 50 bucks left in my account after that, to a uh, homeless uh, people's shelter. And the next day, I sold one of my university papers to two different federations, and each paid me, one paid me 600 bucks, and the other one paid me 1,200 bucks for the same chapter. It was a chapter on training for vertical jump in volleyball. But so the return on investment was immediate, but I'm a big believer. If you want more money, give more away. And, uh, you know, we, for example, why the Navy SEAL Foundation? Well, those guys take care of that. We can live the way we want to live, but our government doesn't support them very well once they've used them. Right. So I leave clear instructions that I want them to the money to be used for rehab. A lot of guys get injuries and no one takes care of them. Right. But it doesn't matter if you give to doctors without borders or, or whatever else. I mean, the thing is that if you leave this planet without making it better than when you were born, you didn't live a good life. 
yeah, what's the point? Yeah. Yeah, agreed. Uh, the, um, when you, what are questions that you ask yourself at the end of the day or the end of the week? Just like you had the questions that uh, your daughter asks, uh, or that you ask your daughter rather, are there, are there questions that you revisit on a regular basis? Uh, well, it's always, how can I make this better or how can I make the teaching more effective? You know, I realized over the years that you have to simplify more and more and more and more. So uh, what, if there's one thing I've learned in 54 years on earth is that, uh, as Einstein said, there's genius in simplicity. Yeah. So, yeah. And one thing I've, I've always admired about, um, the way you teach also, well, the two things really that I've observed, uh, number one is you use metaphor and analogy in a very memorable way. And, uh, I mean, people, if I ask them what the Charlie Sheen point was, it's, they're going to remember cortisol and it's, it, but it's, it's funny. Yes. And it's, uh, it, it's very Charles. Yes. But it's it's also memorable, and I think that uh, you know simplifying and pegging these concepts to memorable imagery is something you're very gifted at, um, and um, you're also not uh, you're not overly easy on your students, which I appreciate because, for instance, I'm training with this uh, this uh, this older Polish trainer in his 60s, and I've, I've I've generally not worked with trainers on a regular basis. I've worked with coaches, but not I, I suppose he could be considered a coach. Mm-hmm. And we're working on uh, he he has four world records in Olympic weightlifting, and um, he the first time I met him, he he's like, take off your shirt, and he walked over and just kind of pinched my left tit and said, "You're too fat," and that was the first thing he said to me. And uh, it was really refreshing because in the U.S. Uh, we have ad- adopted and developed this, you know, you get a gold ribbon for 18th place type yeah. of culture, which is ultimately, I think, a disservice to exactly. the students we're trying to help. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was very refreshing. And, and he's, uh, I mean, he, he's not always belligerent just for the sake mm-hmm. of being belligerent, but he's very brusque when it serves a purpose. And um, uh, I'd, I'd love to just hear from you what you think, what are common mistakes that teachers make aside from not simplifying something uh, enough? I think the whole purpose beyond what I do is based on a Japanese concept. You're only a good teacher if you leave a student that's better than yours. So I always try to make somebody better than me, you know, and I've had many students over the years and I got a few out there now that I could say I'm starting to get happy with. But one thing with people who are successful, you're never happy. Right? So that's the, what this signature says between the eagles, right? The, the eagle won't fix new goals every year. So, um, and I, and what makes me really happy, Tim, is when I see somebody who developed this day's first world champion in jiu-jitsu or uh, Nupak medalist in kayak or, or the other day I was in Stuttgart and some Dutch student brought the equivalent, the Dutch edition of men's health or men's fitness. And they were talking about one of my Dutch students who trained an Olympic medalist in rings. And the guy gave me credit for that, uh, which was nice to see in a foreign language, you know, that uh, my name gets out there. But, you know, my, my ultimate goal is to have one of my students beat my record of uh, Olympians and 
world record holders. I mean, next year we have the Olympics in Rio and I'm training girls in wrestling and I've never had Olympic medalists in wrestling. So there would be 18 sports. So that's, I found that you, even though I teach on strength training almost every day, I think you still have to keep your finger in the pie because, you know, so with the, uh, the three girls I coach, I'm really applying my neurotransmitter theory and all of them. But here again, what about mindset? We're in Cuba. Each one of my girls won the gold medal. Okay. Uh, and very definite uh, wins. But the interesting thing, Tim, is that they, as soon as they get off the mat, within two minutes, they were sitting beside me asking me to evaluate what I thought they did right or wrong. And what could I infer from their fighting into their strength training program design? So there was, for example, Yelena Petroskova, and I said, you know what? Your wrists are way too weak. I said, so we're going to work on your wrists. And then Elaine Merulis, I said, your lower back is too weak. She goes, I keep you say that. I said, that when you move up and down, it's way too slow. Your lower back is weak. And then with this other girl, we, uh, with Vicky, I said, you need uh, to do uh, more slow strength. Your power is very good, but you need more sh- slow strength, which is, a, I rarely have to say that, but in your case, yes, that's the one that's a mangoose on PCP. So, <laughs> so, you know, so the, the, the point was that, uh, people who are winners always have a growth mindset. And I, you know, I remember in 88, my first day with national ski team. And I said, to, after one workout, I pointed out to one girl and I said, you know, she'll be really good one day. And they all looked at me like, what the hell do you know about alpine skiing? They said, she'll, she won't make it more than one year. She was 15 at the time. She was very young to make national team. And in 1994, she was, in 93, she was a world champion. What did you see in her? What did you notice? I, well, what I call the growth mindset uh, in, in a sense that she, she would come after the workout, you know, can I do this? What can I do? So I find that my best athletes, nothing that I see, and it's hard to measure or hard to explain. Um, Reg Park talked about, he called it the intangible, is that it's the attitude while they're doing a set. One of my all-time favorites was a girl named Karen Percy. She won a bronze at the Olympics and two silver, uh, two silvers at the Worlds, or two a silver and a bronze, something like that. But she could be friendly with her teammates in between sets. But when she picked up the bar, she was in some other galaxy. You could tell by her eyes that she was just doing the set, but there was nothing you could have let off a hand grenade beside her. She wouldn't have been jumped. And I look at all the guys I've coached or ladies I've coached who've won Olympic medals. They all have that you know, fifth dimension look. <laughs> Teleportation <laughs> ability. <laughs> yes, because they they live in a moment and they are absorbed in what they do and there's nothing that will disturb them. I was just going to say, you mentioned um, these female wrestlers mm-hmm. and uh, a couple of questions came from fans of mine about training uh, female clients. And mm-hmm. so I'd be curious to hear what you think the perhaps biggest mistakes that are made by trainers who train women or 
uh, just the, the biggest mistakes that say women make if they're training, not necessarily to win an Olympic gold medal, but just for, for the usual set of goals, right? To, to lose fat, to look a bit better, to be a bit stronger. Um, and, uh, I'll follow up with some, some other questions related to athletic goals, but what, what are some of the mistakes in your mind that you see most frequently with, um, with trainers, with female clients? I would say the biggest mistake is not wanting to get strong. You know, the getting strong doesn't make you a bad person. So the, I would say from the outside, if I were to criticize the industry or give a fair evaluation, there's not enough time spent on overload with women, you know, in the sense that they, they don't have goals to, for strength. So, you know, they, they should have shorter goals to comply to because, you know, whether it's a deadlift or you look at one of my top students, her name is Kelly Martinovich. She's out of Perth, Australia. You go to her gym and be really impressed with the quality of physiques of, of people that work in opal mines or dental assistants, whatever. All the females she trains are in great shape and it could be like 70 years old. Uh, but uh, one of my students, Jess in Sydney, she has a lady that's over 80 and this woman is deadlifting, you know, some pretty big weights with good form and there's no excuses. So I, I find that where women lack the most is guidance to how to get strong or the, or being sold on the ability to get strong because, uh, in body composition, you need to build lean tissue. When you build lean tissue, you're more insulin sensitive. The more insulin sensitive you are, the easier it is to burn fat, blah, 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 blah. So uh, what I don't like is what I call entertaining. So they keep the people happy and busy, but busy doesn't mean productive, okay? So I like people to have productive outcome. Um, one thing that has helped the industry tremendously actually is CrossFit. Yeah, I mean, that that was actually the next question was sort of the uh, what you what you take from CrossFit that's good, bad, or in between. Okay, people think I'm anti-CrossFit for some unjust reason, but I think CrossFit, what I, I'll tell you what I like about it. One, they work hard. Do they work smart? Uh, not so much, but they do work hard. So the intention is there, okay? So uh, one of the, there's a very good Hungarian proverb. If you only got one ass, you can't sit on two horses. So. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the problem with most CrossFit boxes is they're trying to accomplish too many things. Like I said, simple is, is better. And, you know, those guys are with the CrossFit games, and I know for a fact they're trained by good strength coaches, but to comply with politics, they say they do the WOD, the workout of the day, which is complete bullshit because I've done consulting for those coaches on how to train for CrossFit events. So, for example, Klokov, uh, my co-lecturer in the series, he does very well at CrossFit Games, but he certainly doesn't do the workout of the day to get there. So the so the intention is good. They use basic, simple, result-producing exercise that, that I like. What I don't like is that there's no screening before people come in. So what they don't do is that they don't look at people's orthopedic issues. So what if I were, again, emperor of all galaxies and you wanted a CrossFit license, people should be screened orthopedically. And then usually within eight to 12 weeks, you could strain out somebody. 
And then they can do CrossFit. But I find the best CrossFit boxes are all in Scandinavia. Uh, they tend to do a more intelligent approach to that. And then I mean, Dimitri and I have been all over the world teaching, and he's, he's been in a lot of CrossFit boxes. And I asked him the same question. He says, yeah, Denmark, Sweden, Norway, they tend to do a better job. Why, uh, why do you think that is? I think that it's just has to do with education. The trainers over there are better educated. And the third thing I like about CrossFit is that there's, they're big onto the paleo eating. Uh, so they're more conscious about the nutrition. You go to Planet Fitness, there's chocolate milk and pizza night on Friday, right? Like, <laughs> what, what the fuck's the point? Why do you want to eat pro-inflammatory foods? So, um, so, so the, the way to make CrossFit better is actually, for example, there's an accident where a guy severed his, his spine. Yeah, that was uh, with a, it was, I think he was performing the snatch, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. one of the first things, that was learned. That was taught was how to get out of trouble. So they say the bar. If you feel it goes like this, get rid of it by dumping it backwards or forwards, and you jump accordingly depending on the direction of the bar. Well, obviously, someone didn't teach him that because he made a rookie mistake by dropping it improperly. Um, so you know the Olympic lifts are complicated things, and to do Olympic lifts for repetitions is utterly stupid. So I don't believe in that. Uh, my colleague Klockoff is a bit less diplomatic than me, if you can believe that. He is will, this, what is Klockoff's, is that his last name or his first name? Last name, Dimitri Klockoff. Oh, was, Dimitri Klockoff. We're talking about the guy with the thunder thighs. I mean, an incredible yeah. actor. Oh uh, yeah, Dimitri is amazing. Okay, I didn't realize you were co-lecturing with him. That's incredible. Yeah, I did. Uh, I'm doing another tour with him. We're going to Toronto. Las Vegas and four places in uh, Australia. Yeah. But I teach with them. We split the days, but he'll say something like, this is typical American CrossFit bullshit. And, uh, <laughs> and then, you know, he educates, but all the CrossFit attendees love him because he's got solutions to CrossFit problems. And the thing with Dimitri, I love lecturing with him because he will make sure that 100% of the students learn. They'll go to every single person. And I've been in this business 38 years, and never, some of the stuff he's shown how to learn an exercise, I've never seen. So the Soviet approach, they don't like to teach you by talking. They teach you by what in French we call educatif, so educational exercise. So you won't say put your hips forward and make you do an exercise to make your hips go forward. Or if you, uh, so all, all corrections are done to a specific exercise, which corrects the technical mistake. So there's uh, very little talking and it, it, a lot of it is, is about kinesthetic learning. Uh, I really yeah. like that. No, just to, to add to that. Um, and I haven't had a lot of experience with the Eastern European strength coaches, but the, uh, the Polish gent that I'm working with right now is exactly the same way. You know, I asked him his opinion. I won't mention names, but of a very famous woman who teaches posture, improving posture. And he said, well, I think it's bullshit because you can't just tell someone to improve their posture. You have to take them through movements that force them to improve their posture. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, it's it's been really fascinating to work with him because, like you said, it's, it's very light on words, but uh, yeah. high on sort of progressive exercises. Um, what are some of the CrossFit problems that Dimitri has helped athletes uh, fix for themselves? Well, when you take a seminar, 
the first thing he, he what the way he does it is that I, I teach in the morning, right? Some stuff, and he, I'll tell you what he does. He shows up and he works out. He does one or two exercises in front of everybody. But this guy is amazing. I was in Montreal. So he, it was the day after he landed from Moscow, so he was supposed to be jet lagged. He slept in the van, twenty minutes of the forty minute ride. He didn't drink water, didn't drink coffee, didn't have breakfast. He shows up, six warm up sets. He takes one hundred and eighty kilos, so three hundred and ninety six pounds. Power cleans it and push presses twice. <laughs> okay, and just so people can imagine this, Dimitri does not look like uh, he—he's not a big fat power lifter. No. Um, this guy looks like Hercules. He is yeah. not it remotely. I mean, what do you think his body fat has to be? I mean, it's well, it's about six percent. But yeah, but right now he weighs one hundred and eighteen kilos, and he's about six feet tall. So he's about two sixty at six feet. I mean, you could see his pancreas make insulin when he has a, yeah. a pizza. So, but he's, I mean, we, there's a lot of funny stuff. Like we were in a restaurant in Montreal and the girl goes, sir, what would you like to drink? He goes, I want cock. And I go, what? <laughs> so I said in French, no, he wants a Coca-Cola. And of course, Paul Carter was there. And he didn't want to be left out. So when the girl asked him, what would you like to drink? So he says, a diet cock. But... <laughs> <laughs> but you know so we, we have to correct his English a bit but it's a lot better now <laughs> but, but I've never seen a freak uh, every day that he teaches he does 95% 200% of the world record as like uh, the first demonstration then <laughs> then we, we break for lunch then I teach mobility for the Olympic lifts and uh, then Dimitri will say for example the first day will be snatch and he'll go all, all these progressions. So the CrossFitter will know on Friday how to snatch properly. And, and he, he, he says, if you don't do PB, no dinner for you. So that's his work line. So everybody has to do a PB. Then the next, yeah. Then the next day you'll do some other freak lift. Then he'll teach clean jerk. So the whole, so I teach how to get flexible for the clean jerk because a lot of people, do the exercise, but they shouldn't, they don't deserve to do it. So I showed them about an hour and a half how to be deserve, uh, deserve to clean and jerk. And on Sundays, he teaches them how to squat. And he teaches a bunch of uh, different, uh, corrective lifts. Um, and you know, they, they work their butts off, uh, with them. But the big, what the CrossFitters get out of it is actually how to do the lifts, but also how to teach them. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That's and very important. I think he could seriously teach somebody how to snatch in 20 minutes, wow. but, uh, and the, the technique would be perfect, but it's, it's not what you see in crosslift boxes by any means. Now, so speaking of, say the snatch, the, mm -hmm. um, technically can be a pretty subtle, uh, nuanced movement. What, mm -hmm. what are your favorite mobility exercises you mentioned the mobility exercises for preparing someone for a movement like the snatch the biggest problem in a snatch usually is uh how to activate the external rotators of the shoulder and how to make the internal rotators loose so i spend a lot of time on different flexibility exercise sometimes i teach them acupuncture points that instantly correct the the issue, I mean, you, you took that class in New York. So it, there are a lot of time savers. And um, 
the, the biggest issue in the snatch is actually how good your rotator cuff is. And uh, we spend an hour and a half on that. Uh, obviously, it's hard to do by podcast to demonstrate them, but we, we go through sequences. And I also show them how to identify why the bar is not going into what we call the slot, right? And then um, we, we also show them uh, corrective exercises they could do on their own to strengthen those muscles so they can put the bar in, into the slot. And um, is there, maybe we can, uh, we can approach this from a different angle. Are there mobility exercises for the shoulder? Let's just say it's in the context of Olympic lifting or overhead lifting mm-hmm. that you think should be thrown out or that, uh, that you would not recommend people do. Actually, I can't answer that. I, 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 I like to teach the correct way. So I'm not, got it. You know, I'm not over-focused on the bad way. Really. Yeah. I just know so many people who have injured shoulders. Um, what are exercises just, uh, I'll try this one more time. If you, if you don't want to answer, it's fine. But are, are there any exercises that you would, aside from the, 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 the balancing sort of contralateral, stuff and the cardio machines. So there are other free weight exercises that you, you think you would remove for novice and intermediate trainees. I, I would, there's some that I would remove for all cases. One, the goblet squat. That is such a moronic exercise. Basically you're limited by the strength of your rhomboids, your anterior deltoids and your elbow flexors. So if you can do a, a goblet squat, and overhold your legs, that means you got a really, really weak legs. You should be in a wheelchair. So that's a moronic exercise. Uh, a lot of the kettlebell stuff, like the kettlebell swings, if ask any chiropractor, they'll tell you their business went up for disc injuries when they had a uh, CrossFit box opening up next door that did a lot of kettlebell swings. Um, I think the kettlebell swings is very harmful to the disc structure. But the thing is that the, the way it arms you, it's like a dental cavity. It doesn't happen overnight. So, uh, you know, you don't brush your teeth on a regular basis. One day you'll have a cavity, but people don't make, you know, so the, they don't make the link between the kettlebell swing and their back problems. Uh, that's an exercise I really hate. Um, one exercise I find overrated is the plank. Uh, another one I found utterly moronic is glute, uh, bridges. Um, Got like the, uh, the kind of supine glute bridges. Yeah. yeah that's, there's so many exercises that recruit the glutes more effectively than that. And if it was that great, all Olympic lifters and powerlifters would do it because success in Olympic lifting and high jump, long jump is glute strength dependent. And no one does that exercise because it's a moronic exercise. Uh, it, the thing, the, the load, if you're in any strong, the load, first of all, when does it ever happen that the load is on the uh, anterior pelvis area in, in real life? Only if you dismount an obese sexual partner, right? <laughs> I mean, that, that, that movement pattern with an overload never happens in, in life. So, I mean, unless you like to date obese women, but uh, it's... It's a non-functional pattern. And, and again, for cervical health, I'm not convinced it's the greatest thing for you. But because it's like cavities, the damage is done over time. People don't associate the problems. Uh, what are good exercises for glute activation or engaging the glutes? 
you can't beat deadlifts and squats and any type of split squats. I mean, those will transfer to ordinary activities, you know, everyday life activities. They'll improve your vertical jump. They'll improve your uh, horizontal jumping ability and so on. Um, but the thing is, is that you look at the guys who advocate those exercises, look at their track record. It doesn't exist. They've never produced anybody. But what I see in this industry is, you know, it's a very normal human nature to figure out where you are in the food chain. And these guys want to move up the food chain by saying something different. And I always use your analogy of uh, uh, if you're going to do something different, it has to be an improvement or it has to be more fun. And I use the analogy you give about wearing your underwear over your jeans. So, <laughs> so I thought that's a good example. But uh, the, a lot of the new stuff is like wearing your underwear over your jeans. It, it, it's no improvement. And it's the only thing that it's fun for is for people watching you, you know, because <laughs> they make fun of you wearing your underwear over your jeans. So the, the, the like I said, there's nothing new since 1896, in my opinion. So uh, there's better ways to do the stuff from 1896, but the concepts were there a long time ago. Now, do you think there's a question about swings with the kettlebell swing? Do you think that kettlebell swings are harmful? Well, I, I guess I'm curious. The um, are they harmful in any tech given any technique for the swing, or is part of the harm? from say a kettlebell, I'm sorry, a CrossFit box in the way that they perform the kettlebell swing. There's no safe way to do the kettlebell swing. There's an exercise called a lumberjack where you use a, a, basically a loaded post, but in, in the lumberjack, the bars move vertically, not into a swing process. So people say, well, you recommend the lumberjack. Yeah, but the lumberjack is like, a different load pattern for the power snatch. If you look at, you know, Klokov and I were talking about this when they asked us about the kettlebell swing. The goal in weightlifting is to lift the most weight in the most vertical way. So the, the, the best way to lift a lot of weight is to actually keep the weight in a straight line. The more horizontal displacements there is to the bar, there's more wasted effort and less weight is lifted. So, you know, that has been studied in biomechanics for years, it, 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 there's no, there's no two ways about it. So the, what I don't like about the kettlebell swing is that the, the weight displaces away from the disc, not the, in squatting uh, or snatches or clean jerk. The bar always stays close to the center of gravity. Got it. So I have a couple of questions from, uh, fans of the podcast who have uh, put things out on uh, Twitter and Facebook. So you've, you've answered quite a few of them already. But this one is from Mia, health urbanista. Uh, what are your thoughts on achieving maximal strength on a plant-based diet, only plant-based, plant-based diet? Never seen it. <laughs> I mean, my answer is quite... Uh, because... You need meat to get strong. Uh, I mean, I eat my vegetables to the animals I eat. I mean, they did the vegetable eating for me. So <laughs> to be serious, I've never seen a world-class strength athlete that was only on a plant-based diet. I've seen octo-lacto-vegetarians. Uh, uh, I've seen one 
who you could call a vegetarian, but still had uh, egg products and dairy products, but a vegan, super strong athlete, never seen it. Got it. Uh, next is from Emily House. High bar versus low bar squat, sumo versus conventional deadlift, pros and cons. They all have pros and cons. They, they, in regarding to the deadlift, uh, they're both good. I would say, okay, the question is, what is the goal? You want to move a lot of weight for short distance so you can win a, a powerlifting competition? Well, most world record holders do it in the sumo because you've got better mechanics. But for training purposes, I think you should change both. For powerlifting, the goal is, can I displace the highest amount of weight for a given range of motion? So the low bar squat will allow you to do that. Now, if you think about long-term health, uh, you look at high bar squats. The reason why I say that is that you look at the incidence of hip replacement in powerlifters versus uh, weightlifters. It's much greater in powerlifters. Yeah, really high. Yeah. Because, because of the, uh, my good friend, uh, Ed Cohn at the hip, total hip replacement. So the, the fact that you restrict the range of motion doesn't allow the piriformis, for example, and the, all the rotators of the hip to gain, uh, optimal range. So if you are, again, it goes back to the goal. Do you want to compete in powerlifting and you want to be world champion? Well, you got to have a much higher squat, the low bar squat. But if you're looking at, uh, squatting with a lot of carryover to a lot of different activities, I would say the high bar squat, if you're going to pick one, is your best investment. If you if you had to pick the high bar back squat, front squat, or overhead squat as the only squat you could use for athletes you work with, which one would you use? The front squat. And this, I have a lot of statistical data on that because – it is impossible to cheat on the uh, front squat, but I'm talking ash to the grass front squat, meaning you leave a stain in the carpet in the bottom position. Uh, in my opinion, for athletic purposes, all squats should be done that way. The overhead squat is a screening exercise. So it's very good to assess just with an empty bar, or even a broomstick, the potential for lower extremity injuries. But as far as a training exercise, you're going to be limited by your shoulder girdle strength. So I think that you could do it as a, you know, what I call a change of pace workout, but I wouldn't use it as a training exercise. That's for sure. And with the, with the front squat from a technical standpoint, do you have any particular, assuming people aren't competing in Olympic lifting, mm-hmm. do you have any preference in terms of arm placement? Do you have the arms kind of folded back with the elbows elevated? Do you have them crossed over? Um, no, they should use it the way the Olympic lifters do it. So uh, slightly wider in the shoulder width, elbows up as high as you can, and actually the elbows in. That locks the bar uh, into right in front of your throat. If you can, if you find the exercise comfortable in the front squat, you're not doing it correctly. Uh, you should feel some restriction in uh, the neck when you front squat properly. Of course, after a few weeks, you won't feel the, it's like if you wear a wet t-shirt, it's uncomfortable for the first five minutes. Then after that, you get used to it. So people, you know, will tolerate the stress of not breathing properly within a few workouts. But, um, for example, in sports, 
in a lot of sports, I've developed formulas where if I know your front squat, let's say your incline press and your power snatch, I can tell how fast you can speed skate or how fast you can push a bobsleigh or whatever else. I call them predictive formulas. But when I use a squat for prediction purposes, uh, I only use a front squat. Got it. This next question is from John Fox, uh, who is apparently a very big fan of your blog. Literally check it every day for new articles. <laughs> and that's, uh, that's Strength Sensei? Yeah. Yeah. StrengthSensei.com. Uh, his question is, he had quite a few questions, but I'm selecting a few here. Uh, one is, what are the most bang for your buck things that people can do to improve testosterone and sex drive? Some people won't be happy with the answers. Change sexual partners. But I mean, <laughs> as a rule, for testosterone, actually, the, the best thing to increase testosterone is to lower cortisol. Because the same uh, raw material that makes testosterone and cortisol is called uh, pregnenolone. Right. And then under conditions of stress, your body is wired to preferentially go towards the cortisol pathway. So anything that lowers cortisol uh, will increase testosterone. So, for example, diminishing the amount of uh, radiation exposure, like cell phones, computer use, blah, blah, blah. Get off the fucking Facebook. That would be one of them. So uh, that um, high zinc high protein containing foods, i.e. meat. Uh, There's a lot of research that backs up meat consumption for improving testosterone. So uh, eating more meat, more red meat. uh, But of course, you know, the the quality of the meat makes a big difference. Cold exposure to cold baths will increase testosterone. What type of duration or frequency or... or, uh protocol would you suggest i'm not up to date on the literature i mean you know more about this topic than i do but that's one thing that uh i've seen some papers on but i didn't really expand on it but the i think reducing stress and the quality of sleep quality of sleep is underrated for um, producing testosterone uh so you need to do what you need to do so one of the things I recommend to people is to sleep in a bad cave. So the room you sleep in should be as dark as possible. It's one of the things I talk a lot about seminars. Like in that powerful executive seminar, one of the topics is the importance of sleep on regeneration. But I think it's the most underrated one. Uh, it's not a question I can answer in five minutes, but sleep, meat, uh, cold baths, and decreasing stress are the four, four most uh, bang for your buck. Um, and, and failing all that, a new sexual partner, it sounds like. That's right. That's right. Because <laughs> the, 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 the thing is, is that, you know, it, it, this is a reality, whether it's animal or, or uh, human evidence, the, uh, changing sexual partners increases testosterone, but <laughs> you may not, you know, it's not for everybody, but the point is, is that. You know, yes, that question I'll answer you truthfully. <laughs> uh, so this question, uh, I, I could add a lot of caveats to this question, but this is John's question. And I think it's a very common one. Um, what supplements should everyone take, uh, whether men, women, or all people in a in a broad age range? Uh, 
I think the most underrated supplement, if you have a perfect diet, which is rare, is magnesium. Even with a perfect diet, you can't get enough magnesium. I don't care what you say. I've measured people's red blood cell magnesium for years. If there's one thing I consistently see low is that one. And when you consistently improve it, you see changes all across blood work, right? So how much magnesium? I think males should take four grams a day, females 2.4. Uh, the second one. What type of magnesium? Sorry to interrupt. I, magnesium. I think the best magnesium out there is magnesium 308, if I, if I were to pick one. But I prefer the different chelates. So I use glycinate. I use orotate. If you look at the physiology behind it, and there's a lot of good research that you easily find, is that every form of magnesium tends to go to a specific tissue. So, for example, magnesium glycinate as a preference for liver and muscle tissue. Magnesium orotate tends to work more in a vascular system. Magnesium 308 is more of a GABA inducer, therefore it improves sleep. So, personally, I take uh, two grams of magnesium 308 at the last meal before going to bed. And I use various forms of chelates, uh, like magnesium glycerophosphate from GABAMAG. I use that. I use uh, magnesium lysinate, glycinate. Uh, I use, and it's good to vary the forms because as the research shows, it tends to go to different tissues. Got it. The second most important supplement, in my opinion, for the average person would be a good uh, fish oil and it should vary the fish oil but when they have fish oil I prefer the brands like the Omega Avail from Designs for Health which has can, uh, you, can you say that name one more time please Omega Avail from, Avail got it yeah from uh, Designs for Health so this where do you have added D3 K1 and K2 when you add D3 K1 K2 the cardiovascular benefits of that fish oil go exponentially uh Number three, it depends where you live around the world, but if you certainly live in the UK, Ireland, or Australia, you are zinc deficient. So again, I prefer to use multiple forms of uh, zinc, chelates, like glycinate, uh, orotate, blah, blah, blah. And uh, so broad-based zinc intake. Uh, in testosterone levels, zinc is underestimated. Uh you will find, for example, when I worked a lot with hockey players, uh, guys were trying to add, let's say, by the time they came to see me, they usually were in their 30s. They had usually two kids, but they're always trying for a third or fourth child. And they became fertile after about four months of uh, uh, sorry, zinc use. So fertility is highly associated with zinc status. But if you look at the research, Zinc status is one of the best predictors of quote-unquote maleness. So the more androgenic you want to be, the more zinc you need. But to detoxify foreign estrogens, the enzymes that do that are also zinc-based. So it works in multiple patterns. You know, zinc is known as a great organizer in, in human tissues. So you, you can't organize chemistry properly if you don't have enough zinc. Uh, what, what type of... Uh dosages do you typically recommend first time clients you'll be surprised i use about 180 milligrams a day for about six months and if you ask mark houston or esther bloom anybody who does clinical nutrition on a regular basis 
they will agree with that value because uh, 30 mil. And the thing is, is that in the early late seventies, you could change a guy's testosterone fairly rapidly with only 30 milligrams of supplements a day. But I don't see that anymore. The doses you need are about six times greater in the last 30 years. Is that just due to ground soil depletion or what is the cause? Multiple factors. I think there's uh, ground depletion, uh, the type of fertilizers we use, but also the stress of the toxic load from the environment. So if you're, let's say, putting a shampoo that has a lot of estrogenic properties, you'll need to detoxify those molecules and those molecules in hepatic detoxification processes Always, almost always use zinc as one of the cofactors to detoxify those xenoestrogens. That makes perfect sense. All right. Uh, let's shift gears just a little bit. Have uh, just a couple more questions, and then I'd uh, love to hear, of course, where everyone can find more information on everything you're up to. What, uh, before we get to that, when you think of the word successful, who is the first person who comes to mind? Actually, Winston Churchill. Why is that? Well, this guy had balls. I mean, he, he stood up to Hitler. He rallied the, the United Kingdom. He refused to surrender. He's a Nobel Prize winner in literature. Very few people know that. Um, he was named Britain, most uh, valuable Britain in 2002. I mean, he's the one who... Uh, contributed to the defeat of the Nazi empire. Um, I think that uh, his attitude and his, uh, he applied a lot of success principles too, like napping and so on. And he, uh, he predicted a lot of things that the Americans did not listen to. For example, he predicted the Iron Curtain. He told uh, Roosevelt that he was getting screwed at Yalta by Stalin. You know, Roosevelt conceded of way too many things to the Russians. And we've had many problems since then, but he was a visionary. Uh, and he was he took a lot of decisions that were unpopular at the time because they required balls. And he was later found through history to, to have been right in the first place. So uh, I think that if you want to study success, you should study uh, Churchill. Yeah, Churchill's a fascinating, fascinating character and also a great example of uh, how how incredible how incredibly productive you can be with some uh, very widely perceived weaknesses as well. Right? I mean just a I mean definitely a whole character and uh, I think a good exemplar of how to focus on your strengths. Exactly. Uh, what is your favorite documentary or movie? You know what? As far as movies, I tend to have laser-like focus all day. So for me, a good movie involves 60 people getting killed in a gruesome way in the first 30 minutes. Like, <laughs> like something like John Wick. I mean, I watch movies to distract me. So if you ask me movies I like, I like The Last Samurai, I like Gladiator. You know, I like movies where the hero has to struggle uh, and overcome difficulty. But you know, there's a movie like the, uh, called The Imitation Game, which has none of these uh, descriptions, uh, and I really liked it. So I, I'm a big movie buff, but for me, movies is to take my mind away from what I do uh, every day. Uh, you know, obviously, I run high on dopamine and acetylcholine, 
So action movies are a far better choice for me than Sleepless in Seattle. So, (laughs) (laughs) but I, uh, you know, the thing I I really like National Geographic, uh, the documentaries they have. I really like uh, learning about animal life. You know, my daughter and I share that stuff. Um, I really like to learn about ecosystems. So those, you know, I like the history channel. I'm not a big movie uh, TV watcher. If I'm going to watch something, it's usually a movie that I, that I rent. Uh, when I'm overseas and I'm sick and tired of teaching, I'll go watch a movie to take my mind off. I find it's a good, uh, I like Quentin Tarantino movies. I mean, I like, I like usually action based stuff. There's, um, I've, I have a movie recommendation that you might enjoy. There's a movie called, and I'm going to butcher this, but, uh, Un Prophet. So a prof, uh, a prophet uh, about this young Middle Eastern kid who gets thrown into a French prison and gets adopted by the Corsican mafia. And it tracks and, his growth from the lowest on the totem pole to the highest in the totem pole. All right. It's an amazing action movie. Yeah. Really, uh, really good. Did you see uh, 22 bullets? No, I haven't that, seen 22 bullets. That's uh, another French movie with Jean Renault, which is a great movie about uh, a guy that tries to retire from the mafia and they don't let him. It's a, if you like action, that's a great movie. 22 bullets. I'll check yeah. it out. Uh, in the last, say, 6 to 12 months, um, what $100 or less purchase has most positively impacted your life? Actually... It was a gift, so I'm not sure what the price was, but it can't be that high. It's called the Bamboo Bench. I featured it on my website. All it is, it's a, a sliced foam roller inside a leather condom with Velcro straps, and you put it over a regular bench, and it has this half-moon shape where your spine rests. So when you do pressing movements, you can drop the elbows much further uh, than with a regular bench. So it allows for a more free scapular uh, movement. And it uh, allows for a greater range of motion when you lift, but it allows you for pain-free upper body pressing. Huh. And it's called the bamboo bench. Yeah. All it is, it's like a, a condom that you put on a bench that has a half moon um, for a, a spine roller inside of it. And it allows, if you go to my website and you search under Bamboo Bench, there's a video that I shot in Stuttgart explaining how to use it. But for, you know, for what it costs or what you have to invest, it's a great uh, investment on the health and strength of your shoulders. Very cool. I, that sounds like my next purchase. Yes. Uh, the, what, does, uh, what does the first 60 to 90 minutes of your day look like? People are fascinated by morning rituals. So just in your ideal sort of, let's just say it's a work day. What is your, mm-hmm. what is your ideal 60 to 90 minutes look like? It depends if I'm on the road or not, but let's say you're not on the road. Okay. Like today. So I wake up early. I tend to wake up at four. Why do I wake up at four? Well, nobody's going to bother me. <laughs> so I've got two hours to myself. So if, if that week I have my daughter, I can do whatever I want to do for two hours before I wake her up make her breakfast and drive to school. So I wake up with a ravishing appetite. So every day I start when I'm at home with some type of wild meat, some type of nuts, and sometimes berries or avocados. So uh, I eat that. Then I make 
coffee and I'm quite uh, fanatical about the way I make coffee. Uh, How do so, you make your coffee? Well, for example, the water has to be near freezing point. The reason why I do that is that it takes longer to warm up the water because it takes longer to warm up, then there's more time for the steam to diffuse through the coffee beans. Therefore, the coffee has more caffeine, more uh, of all the antioxidants. So when you drink that coffee, if I make you a cup of coffee, Tim, today, you may fall asleep Valentine's Day. So, <laughs> so, so people who've been to my house and drink my coffee, you know, they start having convulsions in their faces after two sips. But I really like very cold coffee. And one thing that is high in pesticides is actually uh, coffee. It's one of the most sprayed plants on the planet. So I get my beans either from the Dominican Republic. I've got a, a client who owns their own plantation. And when I go to the DR, I stock up. Or uh, one of my assistant teachers, Carlos Castro, is from the Colombia. And he brings me in uh, organic coffee from Colombia. Or I buy the one from Kona island in hawaii so i really like the coffee beans uh to be of, of choice so i drink a cup of coffee and then typically you, you, just black or how do you take your coffee like my soul black <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes i put uh actually coconut oil in it uh if i need to get a bit more wired uh sometimes i use very very heavy cream like above 35 percent uh, it's funny because I was in London at the Marriott and there's a Polish waiter and I asked for coffee and the guy comes in with already the, what the, the British call double cream in it. And I go, oh, you know, I like my coffee like that. And the kid says, I read your post every day. <laughs> <laughs> so, but I, sometimes I use cream, but probably 70% of the time I drink it black, like my soul. But the, um, and then I read, I'd like to read one hour on uh, non-specific to my job stuff. So I may read, let's say, a biography on Churchill or I may read uh, a book like 59 Seconds. I, I, they're more what you would call self-improvement books. I read recently a book. I probably read a book a day. So I read, uh, I'm a very good speed reader. So I read a book on resilience or this morning at breakfast, I was reading a French book on German grammar. Because uh, you know, I was sounds, like a, sounds like a page turner. You know, I, I was in in Germany uh, last month, and I realized I'd lost a lot of my German. So I, I said, "Okay, I've got to catch up my my German." So, or sometimes what I do is I'll type in sentences on Bing, translate, and I look at the German equivalent or the Swedish equivalent, whatever language I want to learn. Just so they sentences I use all the time in my practice. So like keep your back straight, go lower in a squat, blah, blah, blah. You know? So uh, I do that. And then, yeah, they're not page turners, but it's stuff I like to read. Or even when I'm overseas, I buy classic comic books like Asterix in, let's say, in Swedish or Luke Luke in Swedish or whatever. And I read those because it's a fun way to learn a foreign language without really uh, stressing myself. It's, it's exactly the same thing that I do also yeah. uh, by, because it's also um – Heavy on dialogue, so you yes. get, so you get conversation. I, I know that I say you're under arrest in seventy six languages. No, but, <laughs> <laughs> but the thing is, is that, uh, and then I, after that, I read one hour specific to my job. So, and I like to read a lot of my colleagues' stuff. So one guy I really like is Josh Bryant. So he just wrote a really good book on interval training. 
So that's what I'm going to read tomorrow. Um, and then I don't read much on the internet because I find there's too much bullshit. So uh, I, um, I, I use a Kindle a lot because it allows me to flip the pages faster. And what I like about the Kindle is I can actually highlight what I find interesting. And then at the end of my reading, I reread what I ha- highlighted, which increases your retention by another 70%. So, uh, and then on Sundays, I tend to reread the highlights of all the books I read. So you know, that goes up to 95%. People always wonder, how oh, come I got a good memory? Well, there's some tricks to it, you know? So repetition is important. And then um, after that, then I start my day of work. So I'll write or I'll coach or whatever I need to do. On the road, oh, I usually if I drive my daughter, as soon as I get back, I train. I've got a very good gym in my house. Um, if I'm on the road, I wake up, I eat breakfast, I do some reading. It depends on the distance of the gym. What is your go-to breakfast uh, at home? It's always a wild meat, always. How do you prepare that typically? I typically uh, fry it in gold butter. Got it. Uh, so it could be, so this morning was chicken breasts, but, uh, and I rarely eat uh, chicken for breakfast. It's always a red meat, but I just wanted something different today. And then I always have a nut, uh, whether it's walnut. I really like macadamia nuts, but I vary that so I don't develop intolerances. And then, in Colorado, you can get very good berries year-round, so I eat sometimes berries, or I eat avocados. Um, and then, like I said, the coffee. On the road, it's one of the reasons why I stay at the Marriott worldwide is it's the only place I'll serve steak and eggs. So, <laughs> so <laughs> you know, it's really hot. Like, when you ask for steak, and, like in Italy, you might as well ask the question when the aquarium on top of your head. They're like, what? Steak? You know, eat meat for breakfast. So uh, in Sweden, they have these uh, ethnic shrimp that I like. Uh, they're very small shrimp. So I'll buy it out of the supermarket, keep it in my mini bar. So in the morning, I may have shrimp and cashews for breakfast. So one thing that I don't negotiate on ever is breakfast. I'm a maniac about breakfast. I don't want to eat croissant or like prison eggs, as my friends would call them, for <laughs> breakfast. And the, the salmon is always farm salmon. It tastes disgusting. So uh, in Manchester, there was no way I could get steak and egg for breakfast. So my sister and I, we bought sardines. So I had sardines and brizzle nuts for breakfast the next day. So I, I don't negotiate on that. For me, you'd have meat, fish, or seafood, and some nuts that I find for me has been one of the secrets to my success because when you teach, you got to pay attention. You got to remember what you got to say. You got to be enthusiastic. And if I were to eat what hotels typically give, uh, I wouldn't do so well. Even when I fly, if I go to Europe, I only fly uh, uh, Swiss Air or uh, Air France because if I land, I always have a connection. Air France has the best business or first-class lounge in the world. Second is uh, Swiss Air. And when I fly west, if I go to Australia, I always fly with um, Air New Zealand because, again, the, the quality of the lounge is important to me. You know? For the food. 
Yeah, for the food and, you know, can you take a shower? Can you, you know, American-based uh, airlines are useless. United, Delta, American, <laughs> fuck. You may fly with Air Boswana. You probably get better, <laughs> better service. And, you know, I find with these airlines I named, they actually believe in quality service, you know. And, uh, for example, I think Air France is great. Like, I landed from... Dusseldorf in Paris, somebody was there to pick me up, put my name, drove me to the first class lounge. I didn't have to clear customs. They take your passport for you. They go do it for you. The Lufthansa does the same thing. So the Swiss Air. And you know, people say, well, you waste money traveling first class. I don't believe that because I give a much better seminar if I fly first class than if I fly economy. I can, I'm, you know, one of my unique abilities is I can fall asleep in the shooting yard. I can sleep anywhere, anytime. But I need to sleep when I fly over. And when you fly first class, you're guaranteed quality sleep because there's no one-year-old kid crying, you know, uh, some guy opening up his Tupperware with fucking microwave broccoli. You know? <laughs> so you can say I'm a snob. Yes, I am. But I've learned over the years, even as early as 1982, when I was paying for my own flights, I've always flown business or first because the quality of your teaching will dictate the success of the quality of your coaching will dictate the success. And that will pay way uh, enough your first class tickets. So, uh, you know, I've had discussions with people about that, but I still believe, and also it's a mindset, you know, you want a first class life, fly first class. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've, um, I've found for myself, you know, it took me a long time. Yeah. My family didn't grow up with a lot of money. It took me a long time to, to, make the transition from economy to business. And the only reason that I made that jump was because I tried to save money on an international flight specifically and had to do a speaking engagement the next, next day. And it was a disaster because I couldn't sleep. And it was, uh, it, it all came down to preserving the ability to sleep. If there's some type of, of business engagement on the other end, um, if you could have one billboard anywhere, uh, what would it say and where would it be? That's an interesting question. Probably it would say, know yourself. And where would you put it? Times Square. Times Square. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, population, population density. Because the I, I look at, you know, in my industry, but... I take shooting lessons, right? I love to shoot. I think it's a great relaxation exercise. And I, I said to him, and, and my shooting instructor follows a lot the strength industry. And he said they have the same issues in the shooting industry with people wanting the attention of, of the consumer, right? And I think that uh, the, the key to to success in anything is know yourself first and then you know Klokov he was telling his students that there's one thing that he keeps constant is his weightlifting prep he's learned over the years not to mess with that but he says the other uh, 45 weeks or so left out of the year he goes on a day to day basis and he says he says training is like food sometimes you eat more Sometimes you eat less. You have to 
eat when you're hungry. So, you know, if you look at it, it's a very simplistic way to explain training, but it's very true. So, you know, he explains why he only squats twice a week. A lot of guys in his field will squat nine times a week. But if you look at his longevity, it's really high. Uh, he's remained pretty much injury-free. Um, and the thing is, is that, you know, for example, Ed Cohn, he has a way to train. It's very different than what Kolkoff would do. But I respect Ed a lot. But I found over the years, all these successful people figured out what worked best for them. And uh, it's correct to ask guys like me, you know, the so-called gurus or the senseis for advice. But at the end of the day, you have to make the decision. I mean, I can make you make a more enlightened decision because I've made a lot of mistakes. I mean, the only guy I know who's never, never, never made a mistake in his life pumps gas in a gas station in British Columbia, in Kelowna. <laughs> you know, he, he's my age. He never made a mistake. He still makes eight bucks an hour. So you learn by making mistakes. And, you know, they, they, there's a saying, good judgment comes from experience, but experience comes from ju- bad judgment. So I tell that in my seminars. I often tell stories of how I screwed up medals at the Olympics, but I didn't make that same mistake twice. And, you know, that's why, like, in speed skating, it's probably the sport that I'm most successful in because in early on, I made quite a few mistakes. And I learned not, not to do them again. What advice would you give to your 30-year-old self? Stop working so much. I used to work... 20 hours a day, Tim. That's a lot of hours. Plus, I would train an hour. So I thought that sleep was for wimps. Well, it's not true. I mean, (laughs) you know, I think there's another book that I read in 91, which changed my outlook. It was called Life 101. And uh, it's an old book. Sometimes you'll find there's two authors. Sometimes there's one author, but there was actually only one real author to the book. So eventually it was Peter McDowell, but he taught me how to distinguish the difference between a fantasy and a goal. And I won't give you the, the, the punchline, but it has to do a lot with, uh, you have to do the exercise in the book. So in the book, you'll say, He'll give some theory, always in a funny way. Then he'll say, do you have 20 minutes? Yes or no? If it's yes, well, do the exercise. You don't have 20 minutes, don't keep on reading. And the people who keep on reading never get the full essence of the book. If he, if he asks you, do you have 20 minutes? Yes or no? You don't have 20 minutes, put the book down. Next time you have 20 minutes, do the exercise. But that was a life-changing book for me. And after that, my uh success at the international international level skyrocketed when I applied those principles. But if I were to to think back on my life, I should have had more fun and I should have worked a lot less. And then actually when I read your book, I, w- I was always starting to evolve towards more free time and better organization. And you recommended to me in personal conversation more books, like the one by your friend, I think it's Edward Beruda or uh, it's about simplify your life. I forget the, the author. Anyway, I read him. I decided to have less goals. And the more I evolve, it's again, simplify, 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 simplify. And um, uh, I tell that to some of my best students. Like I say, hey, go on vacation. Uh, it's not so hard with my 
non-British, non-American students, but Canadians, Americans, and British tend to way overwork. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. It's um, blocking it out ahead of time. Really, really, really critical. Putting those things on the the calendar so that work doesn't swell to fill all of the voids. Mm -hmm. Well, Charles, this this has been a lot of fun. I always love chatting and catching up. Where can people find everything about you and uh, what would you like them to check out? The best uh, place to find my stuff is uh, strengthsensei.com. Uh, and then if people want to attend seminars, there's an onglet called uh, Calendar of Events. And it's probably the most simplistic way to – it's a world map and there's like arrows. So if you don't want to travel so much and let's say you live in Australia and you see I'm coming to Perth and you click the Perth flag and then it'll tell you which seminars there are. But also there's different ways to search if you – based on topic, what type of class you want. And uh, my next project is I'm working on a membership-only site. The reason is, is because of social media, people ask these questions. I don't have any time on social media to explain them. But on a membership site, people will be able to say, I'll say, for example, uh, this month, and we're going to really go into detail on choosing the right set, choosing the right rep range, right? And I'll talk for it for, let's say, 90 minutes. So people will be able to watch that. And I'll give routines and recipes and tips but, and anticipate it to be a very successful site uh, because there's a demand for it. And people are willing to pay a nominal fee, which is less than 20 bucks a month to get top level information because, you know, Facebook is nice. I leave tips there and I leave links to my website, but it never allows for, and I got this advice from you actually for videos on me explaining something. The written word never really catches everything. Uh, and there's a lot to be learned from body language. And if I explain a technique, I, I can explain it in writing, but you can tell by the questions that people didn't understand at all. So most people are visual learners. So the uh, membership site, which should be out within the next three months, will be up soon. And of course, we'll broadcast that. And you'll announce that on strengthsensei.com. Where can people find you on social media if they want to just receive those updates as you publish them? Uh, Strength Sensei on Facebook. Got it. All right. Go ahead. I'm sorry. go, Go ahead. And I've got a Strength Sensei equivalent in German Spanish, Russian, and French. So if you go strength sensei Deutsch, it'll be the German version, and then French sensei de la force, and, and, and sensei de la forza in Spanish. So, so depending on your uh, native tongue, uh, the same information is there. And I've got about a dozen translations in different languages to my site. So if English is not your first language, and you're more comfortable, let's say, with German or Dutch or French, uh, the most popular articles get translated um, and even in Russian. So it, it's, it's picking up. I mean, my website, this morning, I think it's 83,000 on Alexa. So for, for being in, in that new business for a year and a half, it's a pretty good score. Yeah. And I will obviously, everybody listening, link to all of the sites and uh, to Charles on social media in the show notes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you guys could find the links and resources and so on at fourhourworkweek.com forward slash podcast, all spelled out. Uh, any parting, parting comments or parting words, Charles? Well, 
the parting words is thank you. I mean, you, it's a great honor for me to be in the same list of, uh, uh, invitees as Schwarzenegger and Anthony Robbins. I mean, those are big names. So, uh, you're a big name too. Yeah. But you know what? It's like, it's a big pleasure for me. And I really appreciate your time and the ability to be uh, reaching your audience. I think that what I want to be most grateful for is that, I think that people who have an ill-perceived notion of me uh, will know more of my human side. And um, I think that's a big factor uh, in life. And I'm uh, forever grateful for that opportunity, Tim. Oh, my pleasure. I really wanted people to have the, the chance to kind of sit down with us at the table and and really dig deep and uh, get to know you a bit. So I, um, I really appreciate it. I'm sure people will uh, let us know if they want a round two, which I'm sure will be the case. And uh, until next time, everybody, thank you for listening. Thank you, Tim. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. I get asked all the time, if you could only use one supplement, what would it be? And my answer is inevitably Athletic Greens. It is your all-in-one nutritional insurance. I recommended it in the 4-Hour Body, did not get paid for that, and I travel with it to avoid getting sick. I take it in the mornings to ensure optimal performance. It just covers all my bases if I can't get what I need through whole food meals throughout the rest of the day. And you can get 50, oh my God, 50% off. Yes, 50% off if you go to athleticgreens.com forward slash Tim. That's athleticgreens.com forward slash Tim. Check it out. It's tasty, but more important, it will help you not screw up when you're doing your nutritional planning. So for me, it just covers the bases, takes a load off my mind, puts a lot in my body. And uh, check it out, athleticgreens.com forward slash Tim. This episode is brought to you by 99designs, your one-stop shop for all things graphic design related. I have used 99designs for everything from banner ads to book covers, including sketches and mock-ups that led to the 4-Hour Body, which later became number one New York Times, number one Wall Street Journal. And the brainstorming, a lot of it took place with designers from around the world. And here's how it works. Whether you need a t-shirt, a business card, a website, an app thumbnail, whatever it might be, you submit that project and designers from around the world will send you sketches and mock-ups and designs. You choose your favorite and you have an original that you love or you get your money back. It's that straightforward. And many of you who are listening have already used it and created some amazing things that I'll be sharing in the future. But in the meantime, if you want to see some of my competitions, some of the book covers, as well as get a free $99 upgrade, go to 99designs.com forward slash Tim. That's 99designs.com forward slash Tim. And until next time, Thank you for listening.